Welcome to the Nerd of the Rings podcast. To get the latest Middle-Earth-related videos, including Tolkien Explained, Complete Travels, and Theories, visit youtube.com slash nerdofthering's. This audio podcast is made possible by the support of my wonderful Patreon supporters. To learn how you can score some exclusive perks while supporting the channel, visit patreon.com slash nerdofthering's. Welcome everyone to Nerd of the Rings. Today I am honored to welcome Mr. Brian Sibley to the channel. He is the author of numerous books, including the official movie guides for the Middle Earth films, the authorized biography of Peter Jackson, as well as the writer for one of my personal favorites, the 1981 BBC radio adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. Mr. Sibley, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi Matt, it's lovely to be with you. So uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording here. Uh, this actually, uh, 2021, marks the 40th anniversary of the BBC radio drama. It does. And uh, we, we are now, it, we are in what would have been the, the week of the third episode. And in fact, the day on which, well, no, I think tomorrow from on the day in which we're talking, uh, would be the the broadcasting of the of the third episode, which was the dark, the Black Riders. Mm. Uh, so yeah, forty years on, very very curious uh, for me uh, re reflecting on it because it was a series which totally changed my life, my career, uh, and apart from anything else, um, I'm going to explain that in a minute. But apart from anything else, it it, it installed me as a part of the Tolkien industry, I think I have to yeah. say now, but it wasn't so much then. But for me, it was a watershed because I had been writing for radio. I loved radio. I grew up listening to radio, and I and I adored what a friend of mine uh, called many years ago the theatre of the mind. Uh, mm. uh, and you know, the idea which we probably may touch back on, but is that on radio. You can do all kinds of things that you you can't do on mm -hmm. film. Well, of course, you can do them on film. But what I mean by that is that it has a completely different nuance because what mm -hmm. you're creating, it's a, it's a joint creation. It's not just the writer or the actor. It's a relationship with the listener because as you describe characters or scenes or as the actors play their parts, you, the listener, start uh, co-creating the mm -hmm. images there you know and that's what makes it so unique so i loved radio and i'd grown up listening to it all the time i loved radio drama uh it did introduce me to masses of of books and think of uh, by different authors who i was previously unaware of uh and i had done one drama at 45 minutes long i i point this out because the lord of the rings was 26 half hour episodes yeah uh, and i was writing with a very established colleague called Michael Bakewell. But at the time, I had written one 45-minute play based on a book by American writer James Thurber. A uh, very slight story, but a lovely story. And the BBC in those days, is all very different now, but in those days, it was very much, it was a bit of a kind of a, a, a club, really. And if people liked what you did, they would come back and say, is there something else you'd like to do? Uh, so uh, <laughs> the BBC said to me, what else would you like to do? Uh, and I offered them the newly published, recently published at the time, posthumous book, Morris by Ian Forster. Um, I was a recently uh, out uh, young gay man 
and I thought the book was amazing and I thought it was incredible that Forster had been made to suppress well through his own choice suppress the book for until after his death uh, well it was too strong meat for the BBC so they said no we can't do that the, subsequently of course it was made as a movie and a um, big success but back then we're talking 1970 end of 79 uh, that they wouldn't have contemplated doing that on the BBC so what else would you like to do? And I, I drew up a list of, I, I don't know, probably a dozen books that I was infatuated with that I would like to, to do. And at the end of the list, uh, and this is absolutely true, I put, or maybe The Lord of the Rings. And I put it <laughs> because it seemed like the least likely thing that anybody <laughs> would do. You know, I mean, it's huge and it's yeah. three volumes. And how much would you, would it cost and how would you do it? Uh Anyway, um, in those days, you could wander in and out of the BBC, not now, of course, um, at, a, at a moment's notice. And I was young, um, impoverished, really. I'd only recently gone uh, into freelance after years in local government and banking and doing things I hated. I was now trying to earn my living as a writer. Uh, so I used to, if I'm honest, when up to, whenever I went to London, I would go into the BBC's broadcasting house, their head place. Yeah because I knew that I could wander into the canteen and get a cheap meal. So mm. I was on my way to get a, a cheap lunch uh, when a guy called Richard Imerson, who was head of what was called the script unit, he was the person who was responsible for uh, not ne necessarily commissioning all the things, but but sort of lining up writers with projects and so on. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of commissioning. And he happened to come out of his office as I was walking down the corridor, and he grabbed me. Uh, by the sleeve and pulled me into his office and shut the door and said in a kind of hiss at me, who told you? And I said, uh, who, who told me what? And he said, uh, uh, about the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know what he's talking about. So I said, I, sorry, I, what, what do you mean who told me? I, I, or what, what am I supposed to have known? You must have heard. Who's the mole? Somebody in this building has told you. And I said, told me what? So he then revealed that the BBC was at that very moment negotiating with Saul Zance, who they assumed, <laughs> wrongly actually, but they assumed was the person who held the copyright in the book ah. uh, because he had been the person behind the making right. of the film and, and mm -hmm. the uh, uh, ranking Bass, Hobbit and so on. Right. They assumed that he had the rights and they were negotiating with him to do a radio dramatisation. I had no idea. It took a long time to convince this man. <laughs> I had no knowledge of that. <clears throat> so at the end of it, the end of the conversation, he said, well, look, I don't know whether we're going to pull this off, but if we do, are you, do you want to be involved in some way? Hmm. Uh, and I said, do, do I want to be? <laughs> uh, so um, that's how it began. Of course, in fact, Saul Zantz, it turned out, did not own the copyright um, hmm. to the radio Air, air broadcast version of yeah. the books and having paid quite a lot of money to Mr. Zance, they then had to get it back, the BBC, and renegotiate with the Tolkien estate who still owned the radio rights. Wow. So there was um, quite a lapse of time when all that went on. But true to his word, when they finally signed, they came back to me and said, we would like you to prepare the book in... Um, 26 parts for so half a year of broadcasting break mm -hmm. basically uh and i 
I vainly, because I was innocent and ambitious, and you know, when you're young, you think you can do no wrong. Right. I mean, now when I look back at it, I think, how the hell did I ever think that I could do this? You know, I had no basis for thinking that I I had the the ability to be able to write that. But at the time, I thought, right, great. So I was terribly offended of, initially that they said you can do 13 of the episodes. You can structure it, how it's going to be, break it down into the 26 parts, give us a total synopsis for how you're going to do it. Uh, and then you can write half of the episodes, and the other half will be written by a guy called Michael Bakewell, whose name I knew. He was a producer and adapter. He'd done the he'd done the War and Peace on, for the BBC, so he knew how to do big projects. Yeah. On hindsight, years later, someone said to me, uh, well, actually, of course, what the BBC thought was that if Sibley screws up, well, we've got this hugely experienced man who can just step in. But whatever, <laughs> the, whatever the truth of it, they took a flyer on me. Um, and so I spent the next six months uh, preparing the book for to be, you know, broken down into episodes, what the plot would be, who would be involved, what, which characters would be involved in which episodes. Uh, I mean, you, you might want to know more about that because it's structurally, it's a very interesting challenge. Yeah. Um, and and then spent another six months um, writing my 13 episodes and working with Michael where we overlapped or where one of us left and the other one came in. Uh, and then another three months in studio recording the episode. So it's all a long, long time ago. But, um, yeah, on the 8th of March, uh, this is the front cover of what was a magazine called The Radio Times, yeah. Uh, like it's a listing magazine um, mm -hmm. of what's on BBC uh, radio and television. It's still called Radio Times, although um, now it's, oh, it's all television and uh, <laughs> um, whatever's going on on other platforms. Right. But cover art was by a man called Eric Fraser, who was a very established artist. Uh, Tolkien fans will know that he, first of all, redrew the pictures by the uh, then princess, now queen of Denmark. Uh, for the Folio Society's Lord of the Rings, yeah. and himself uh, did the, uh, illustrated The Hobbit. And when I knew that he was going to do the, the cover art, mm -hmm. my dad had worked in commercial art just be before the war, and had always sort of alerted me to the work of great artists, and he loved Eric Fraser's work. So I'd grown up knowing about all these artists and seeing the Radio Times every week. I used to go through and look for the... The, the piece of art by the um, by by names I'd heard of, mm -hmm. and so I thought I heard he was going to do the cover. I thought, wow, um, I must get that cover. So I wrote to Eric Fraser, care of the art editor at the magazine, mm -hmm. and said, um, could I buy it? And he he wrote back, and he was a bit surprised because he hadn't actually drawn it at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the idea of somebody wanting to buy something which he hadn't drawn hadn't seemed done yet. <laughs> weird um anyway yeah he said if i get it back from the bbc uh, then we could we could make a deal he said mm. and uh he said use your influence to encourage them to give me back my artwork i didn't know what i had no influence I didn't know <laughs> who i was uh anyway i duly told the art editor that i had a deal with uh, mr fraser and uh, eventually the um the piece of art for the price of 40 guineas, which is 40 pounds and 40 shillings. Mm -hmm. I should have translated that into, uh, there's the original art for the wow. post, for the cover and a poster, because the BBC made it into a poster. So um, 
very very precious to me and this year this year i've it's hung on the wall for well 40 years but um uh this year i find myself looking at it quite a lot <laughs> so, so you mentioned um you know the the challenge of adapting the lord of the rings um what what was your process like uh you know deciding what to keep and what to cut um you know a couple popular examples obviously there's um there's a group of fans that you know really want to see tom bombadil in pretty much everything <clears throat> excuse me um but yeah. one, one thing that that you all did keep was uh the scouring of the shire um which the very first time that i listened to it i was very pleasantly surprised i thought that was pulled off really well um so how did you go through that process of what what to keep versus what to cut well it was very difficult um and the main difficulty uh is the fact as you're aware that once the fellowship is broken mm -hmm. that the that tolkien no longer tells the story chronologically right uh, he tells you about sam frodo and Gollum. He tells you about aragorn gimli and legolas he tells you about merry and pippin and cuts between the 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 three main threads plus all the other instant well they're not incidental but all the other characters that come on like Theoden and and uh, Denethor and so on mm -hmm. so the real problem for me was not just knowing that I had to make it chronological because I had half hour episodes and if I'd followed Tolkien's system well you would have had maybe four five six episodes with Aragorn Legolas and Gimli and then you'd have gone back in time for four or five episodes and had Sam uh, Frodo and Gollum which obviously yeah. you know wasn't going to work it had to be chronological but of course I knew because I'd read Tolkien's letters I knew that Tolkien was very very strongly against the idea of the story ever being presented chronologically mm. which of course is nonsense I mean my admiration for the professor is unbounded but the man was wrong you know, he was not a novelist. And and and, and actually, in saying that, it, therein lies the strength of the book, the fact mm -hmm. that he was not uh, somebody who was writing for a living, writing novels mm -hmm. for a living, that he no, he wasn't. And, of course, in the, in the period we're talking about, editors didn't work in the way they do today. I mean, today an editor would have thrown the book back at him and said, you can't possibly have a structure like this. You've got <laughs> into some chronological uh, right. age-turning way. Um, so that was the first hurdle. Everything was fine up to the breaking of the fellowship. And from then, how was I going to do it? Um, so basically, I followed the appendix to The Return of the King mm -hmm. because in the tale of years, at the back of the Lord of the Rings, Appendix B, you have listed there every single date where something happened. Mm -hmm. Now, in the book, it's kind of Tolkien tells you where, where we are in relation to what other people are doing by things like pointing out the phasing of the moon. So right. one character will see a full moon and then several chapters on, you see another group of characters, but they're seeing that moon that was referred to earlier. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, I thought I'm going to follow that chronology. Uh, and but But of course, then I had to work out how always to have all of these groups of characters in every episode, um, which was, you know, uh, important for lots of reasons, partly because some of them were star names, Ian Holm, particularly mm -hmm. playing um, um, Frodo, 
and it, for British listeners now, probably for other people know him, know of his work as well. But pe- actors like Sir Michael Horden mm-hmm. uh, and, and Robert Stevens, Sir Robert Stevens, these were pe- names that people knew. It was part of what was going to make people listen to the series. So they all had to be somehow or other in every episode. Mm. And that in itself is a nightmare because the fellowship, that's the problem with the first half of the book, that you have nine key characters. And of course, they don't all speak in the book at all. I mean, you, you know, mm-hmm. people don't think about it. But if you're watching Jackson's film, for instance, there are loads of scenes where the, the nine are there, but they don't all have a piece of dialogue, but they're there in the background or to one side. So you're aware of right. them yeah. as a fellowship. Uh, on radio, if somebody doesn't speak or doesn't have a vocal presence, they're not there. You know, right. we, so what do you do? Do you invent kind of lame language like uh, that's what I think, too, or so say <laughs> I, or something like that in order to establish they're all there? Um, quite a challenge, actually. Mm-hmm. From the moment of the breaking of the fellowship, basically, I followed Tolkien's uh list of dates and events and then i always tried to find a cliffhanger so 30 minutes in or 29 minutes in something would happen that either anticipated something that was going to happen or something dramatic occurred which would leave you waiting for the next episode and and you know that that's the the old trick of every soap opera that's ever been done that you want people saying i must hear next week yeah Um, and that was uh, all of that I enjoyed. Um, I was wise enough. Um, very early on, I said to Michael Bakewell, because I knew it was going to have 13 episodes, he was going to have 13. I didn't know how it was going to be done. I, I, you know, I mean, nobody said to me, well, you have one to 13 and Michael has 14 to 26. Nobody told me that. So I thought, well, I have to find out how I'm going to, how we're going to split the work. Hmm. So I said to, to Michael, um, how do you think we should do it? Uh, wanting to be inclusive and you know yeah. and he said simple he said this is your project um, which was incredibly gracious of him um, you take whatever episodes you want and I'll do the rest wow <laughs> uh, so but I wasn't stupid enough to not stop and think what is what can I do the best mm. knowing how inexperienced I was and I knew that the Battle of Pelennor Field would not be something I had the faintest idea mm. really how to tackle. I could work out the, the uh, synopsis for the scene, you know, what had to be in it and where yeah. you come from too. But actually writing dialogue for people in a battle, I didn't know how to do that. Mm. So I chose for myself the first few chapters, so all the stuff to do with the Shire, uh, leading up to uh, Bree. So there was some action stuff in there, but but yeah. basically it was the kind of stuff that I felt most comfortable with. And I chose the end chapters from Mount Doom. So I did have the, the episode at Mount Doom where the ring is thrown away. And then I had a, a bit in the middle, which I think was around the dead marshes. I'm not entirely sure. Mm. Um, but but left to Michael all the really difficult stuff, you know, the, yeah. the ride out, the, the ride of the Rahirim, um, Theoden, um, and Gandalf when they ride to uh, Helm's Deep, all of those mm-hmm. things, which I had no idea really how to do. <laughs> um, but we worked very closely, and there were quite a number of times where Michael would ring me up and say, look, I'm really stuck here. Uh, I don't know how to get this last bit into my episode. Can you pick it up? Can you deal with it? Uh, or I'd say to him, 
I'm running a bit short here. Is there anything you can unload back to me and how could we do it? So we work mm. very closely like that. And I learned a lot from him because he was an immensely experienced writer. Um, so I was, you know, I was really lucky. I mean, for me, it was like the beginning of um, a career which I might have spent years trying to establish for myself because the series got huge publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody started tuning into it and you know people just because we're talking about a time before you before you could rerun the stuff that you'd missed you know which we're also used to now I mean you can right. just pick it up later on a podcast or on a watch again platform well we didn't have any of that so it was a case of hear it or miss it right now on Sunday lunchtime for many people it was their mid Sunday event you know it was just mm had to be there you had to be at home or you were driving to to granny's for for sunday lunch and you listen to it in the car on the way or whatever and then it went out late at night on wednesday night the repeat uh and i don't think i was alone in recording live from radio uh on cassette recording both of those episodes i had to have both episodes you know i had to record them both pressing the buttons at the right moment you know as i uh <laughs> hoping the tape wouldn't snarl up or <laughs> so it became a, a real event for people um which it wouldn't be today but it was then and in fact so much so that i remember going to a, a local corner store uh, uh, where i lived uh, to pick up a newspaper and, and i don't know whether they do uh in the states but they put in the windows little cards saying buggy for sale or uh, secondhand this or secondhand that <laughs> and babysitting services, window cleaning services, that kind of thing. And there was a card in this window. Obviously, the person didn't know that I lived in this area, in the area where they were sticking their card in the window <laughs> saying, we'll trade any episode of the Lord of the Rings for episode eight, which I missed. <laughs> so that's how manic people were. Um, that that particular person, I was able to copy it and give them a copy of it. So it was fine. But it was obsessive. People bought the poster of that cover uh, in their hundreds. Uh, I remember the BBC asked me to write all the copy for the back of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I was pretty pushy as a, as a youngster, really, I now realise. And I said, well, what are you going to pay me? And they said £200, I think it was, which was quite a lot of money. Uh, and I said, no, I want a royalty. I want one penny on every poster you sell. Anyway, they wouldn't give in to me. And eventually <laughs> it became this great massive thing where I was told that I would ruin the whole event by withholding my copyright or my willingness to do it. And so I caved in and did it. And, of course, the thing sold out the very first printing and went on selling for zillions and zillions of copies. I mean, I'd have made an absolute fortune just out of writing the blurb about Tolkien and the actors of the story on the back of the poster. However, there we are. Um, and the, post, the poster, uh, the cover, rather, which I managed to obtain, years later, well, two years ago, actually, there was an auction in London where all of Eric Fraser's other drawings came up for sale because every week in the Radio Times, he did a, a little drawing. And I mean, I, I'll give you, oh, I should mention this, actually, first of all. This is the article that appeared in the Radio Times uh, when when uh, the magazine came out, that that that's me, by the way, uh, there, sitting on the uh, on the side here, yeah. um, talking to the North Farthing smile of of the Tolkien Society. We're all dressed up as elves and goblins and wizards and whatnot. Um, uh, and the, the Tolkien Society did fantastically because right at the end of the article, which did 
if you were if you weren't happy with cosplay, it would have made you feel a bit uncomfortable. But it said at the end, the address of the Tolkien Society is, and then the address of the then secretary, and people they were astonished that people wrote in in their hundreds, and the membership of the Tolkien Society zoomed up as a result of this. So you know, it really was a kind of weird phenomenon um, at the time. I mean, now looking back, uh, I think, gosh, you know, it's amazing that it all happened at the time. Because I think when you're young, you think anything's possible and everything will, everything will happen. Uh, I just assumed, I wasn't surprised. I just thought, well, that's exactly how, you know, of course it would be like that. Right. This is, this is the page on the day of the, uh, of the actual broadcast. Now, that little drawing in the middle here, that's, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to go the other way. Here we are. I can't get used to doing things backwards. Can you see it now? No, you can't. There we are. A little there bit over. Are. There you go. There you go. There. So that he did one of those for every one of the 26 episodes. Three of them weren't published because there was an industrial strike and the Radio Times uh, couldn't um, couldn't print. But mm. two years ago, all of these drawings came up for auction at Sotheby's, the auction house. Here's one of them, which is... Um, oh, yeah. ...which used on the cassette boxes and on the back of the post and shows Gandalf strangely holding the ring, which he only does most fleetingly in the book, uh, with obviously Frodo and Sam behind. Um, uh, and I managed to buy, a, a, I nearly pauper'd myself, but I managed to buy all of the, the art uh, related to the radio series, which, um, yeah. So it was, it was a challenge, but because well, I was young and, and hungry, I don't mean hungry, hungry, I mean ambitiously hungry, yeah, I thought I can do it. Whatever it is, I can do it. It's not going to be a problem. Um, <laughs> uh, and it was a bit of a pain in the studio. I think the the producer. I don't think I know the producer. Actually, came to <laughs> dread my being there because if <laughs> mispronounced anything. I was. I would say, no, you can't do that. No, no, no. It's not that. It's this. You know. And of course, some of the names are quite, as you know, the language of of Middle Earth. Or the place names, for example, mm -hmm. they're quite a challenge. Um, yeah. Actors, you know, have got a long speech to, particularly Aragorn. I mean, Robert Stevens had lots of problems because, you know, trying to create a character, but then say Emmy Moore or Kirith um, Arnor or something, mm -hmm. or, you know, in the middle of your speech, just yeah. like a foreign language out of nowhere. It was a real challenge for him. Christopher Tolkien made a, an audio cassette, which we could play to the actors with how to pronounce all the names mm. of places. Uh, but frankly, you know, they'd listen to it a couple of times. And then, of course, when it looms up halfway through a long speech, they've then forgotten how to say it. So right. it was a real challenge for, for some of the actors. Um, but, you know, it was a fantastic cast. Um and Ian Holm was, well, and of course, I'll come on to it, I'm sure, but Ian Holm, of course, would later play uh, Bilbo. Mm -hmm. um, and he, his Frodo was, he knew the book. He knew the book inside out and back to front. And he, he studied so much of how it was going to be. Um, I mean, he would frequently take, we only had an hour, a day and a half for each half hour episode to rehearse and record. But he would often do several takes because he wanted to find a different nuance to the performance or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, other actors, quite different. Um, 
Michael Horden, who played Gandalf, didn't understand anything about the book at all. He had no idea what it meant. He'd never read the book. He only read the scripts. And he only read the scripts as they were delivered to him. So when, in the minds of Moria, on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, Gandalf plunges to his fate, uh, he rather grumpily came into the control booth and said to the to the producer um jane i'm very confused my agent said i was in uh, i think it's uh, uh, 17 18 episodes i seem to have died in this episode <laughs> no 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 michael michael it's fine you're resurrected in three episodes time and he went oh splendid splendid and you know for him that was it he just did whatever it said on the page but did it extraordinarily well i mean there's something about his performance that you just uh, well i still find it deeply moving and if he didn't understand it then that just shows how good actor he was and and the other person I have to mention is, is Peter Woodthorpe who, who played Gollum and uh, Peter Woodthorpe had played Gollum in the Ralph Bakshi Lord mm -hmm. of the Ring part one uh, and he was just extraordinary because he just lived the part and there were moments extraordinary moments in studio with him and Ian Holm and Bill Nye then mm -hmm. called Bill Nye who played Sam in the, th the three of them uh, which were physical. I mean, you know, this is actors standing around a microphone with bits of paper in their hand, turning the page and kind of reading on. Yeah. Uh, but there were moments where he and Ian he grappled with one another. And there's a moment where um, Frodo subdues Gollum. And, you know, home is sort of forcing Peter down onto the, onto the studio floor. It was extraordinary to watch, really. I mean, they're all dressed in their usual, you know, sneakers and trainers. Right. But uh, inside, they were all living it. They were living it. And and I think that's what, I guess, what people picked up on, really. Absolutely. Yeah, I I uh, am just in awe of the, the cast and the performance. I, I just so easily get sucked in uh, to the story. And um, one of the things I, I thought was interesting is someone who was originally introduced through the Peter Jackson films is uh, how similar really the uh, the actors from the radio drama are you know to the to the film actors and vice versa you know i think of uh gandalf obviously and uh i mean honestly the one that's probably the most different is ian holm um as frodo um but the, it's it's kind of crazy that um i think you know anyone who's a, a fan of the films if you just jumped into the middle you could probably guess which character it is just by the voice it, it's kind of eerie how similar they are well the thing about the voices was very early on um the producer jane morgan was adamant that what she didn't want was funny voices mm. i don't know whether you know the mind's eye american radio mm -hmm. production yeah uh, where how we tell, tell, tell like that you know it's <laughs> kind of somebody thought they needed to be cartoony i mean yeah. i can't criticize oddly i can't criticize the voices particularly in either the um ranking bass hobbit or or the back sheet because there's some great actors in those mm -hmm. the voices there yeah and apart, and apart from peter woodthorpe in the back sheet michael graham cox who played boromir played boromir again in, in the radio version um <clears throat> so there's some great voices but what jane wanted to do was two things first of all she didn't want 
silly voices, funny voices, but she wanted to make sure that all of the voices, particularly of the fellowship, all were so distinct that you didn't ever have to think, oh, is that Mary or is that Pippin? Mm. Mary and Pippin were probably the closest because they were both young actors. Right. Um, but, but you know, if it was Legolas and Gimli, there was no doubt which, which actor you were listening to. Um, so she had an ear for that. She was a great, uh, still is actually, uh, a, a very, very experienced producer and has produced masses of very um, character-driven books for, for mm. radio particularly Dickens. I mean, she's done masses of Dickens. And so she was tuned in to knowing what voices would work well against other voices and so on. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's important. But of course, it isn't accidental that either the characters have similarity with, with Peter's, Jackson, that is, um, mm. or that the structure of the films is very close to the structure of the radio version. Because right. Peter had the cassette version of this radio version. Um, when he was traveling from Wellington to Auckland as a young student, he was traveling by bus. He listened to, he wasn't a great reader of books at that, at that point. He, you know, he, mm -hmm. he was a picker up of stuff in other ways, audio particularly. Yeah. So he listened, to the, he listened to it on cassette, um, traveling up to Auckland to go to college. Uh, and it's not accidental that much of the same structure, I think. I, I, don't, yeah. think, I don't think I'm claiming something there that, that isn't there. And, it, and, and indeed, once in an unguarded moment, um, uh, Jackson said something to the effect of, well, we're, we're following your, your scenario here or something. Mm. You know? uh, and, and they did actually say, uh, he and Fran said... Uh, of the last episode where I had kept back um, some dialogue between Frodo and, and um, Sam at the Grey Haven. So I'd kept it mm. back so that you would hear Frodo's voice just before Sam went back into Bag End and said, well, I'm back. Right. Uh, and in Sam's head, you hear Frodo say, there's so much for you to be and to do. Yeah. And uh, Fran said, well, we stole your ending. <laughs> <By the way. laughs> Um, so, but um, it's not accidental. Um, but but you know, in a way, that for me is all the more remarkable that you know I was in love with the books. I mean, I haven't talked about how I came to read the book um, and why I love Tolkien. But for me, this accidental event of saying I'd like to do the Lord of the Rings, which was beyond the bounds of possibility, ended up with my being involved and going on being involved with stuff to do with Tolkien. 40 years later you know yeah so you you touched on it and uh usually it's my first <laughs> first question i ask people i think i was well, just I anxious anything actually i'm just non-stop talking <laughs> no you're great um yeah i think i was just i started with the uh the radio drama because i i'm i was excited to get to that but yeah tell us how how you got first introduced to tolkien i read the hobbit from the school library um, I can still see the copy. It was a very rather boring grey, black and white cover. Um, and uh, I loved it. It was, and I loved it because I was a very, very slow reader. I'm not the best person in the world to have to handle anything to do with long books. Um, I still am very, very slow. I tend to remember most of what I read because I read. Mm. Um, I've read late in life. I was quite, um, you know, I wasn't a, the smartest kid on the block. 
um, and was very late to reading. But I loved books and I loved being read too, but I was either, I think now I was very probably, I would say that I was very probably dyslexic, but nobody knew or didn't have a label to put on it at that time. Mm. Today, probably I would have been helped better. Yeah. Um, so I read The Hobbit and loved it. And then I thought I need to read The Lord of the Rings. So I got it out of the library, public library, uh, and realized it was three volumes because it, they had it as sort of three separate volumes. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't cope with the prologue. There was this long prologue which Tolkien wrote setting up, you know, about the history and uh, pipe weed and all those. Mm -hmm. And I just got bogged down in it. And I thought, oh, and then I kept looking at how long it was and I'd flick through it and I'd see all these long words and names that I didn't understand. And so I didn't read it. Um, yeah. In the meanwhile, however, I was intrigued enough about Tolkien to pick up whatever else came along. So I found Farmer Giles of Ham and mm -hmm. Smith and Wooden Major when it was first published mm -hmm. and The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Yeah. Uh, um, this copy, um, which of course is is close to, because it's, it's from the Red Book of Westmarch, so it's the book that supposedly contains the stories and verses written down by Bilbo and Frodo. Yeah. Um, so it's got a strong link with The Hobbit. And I love the illustrations by Pauline Baines, who later became mm -hmm. a very close friend of mine, but not uh, not known at that time. And I wanted to, to send Tolkien something. By this time, I had bought the three volumes. I still hadn't read it, but I bought them. So I wrote him a fan letter. I copied out some of the runes around the edge of the Hobbit cover. Mm. Uh, and I wrote something in Quenya, I don't know where I got it from, somewhere in the Lord of the Rings. I don't know why I did, because I mean, like, why would you write to Tolkien and write <laughs> something that he had written in a rather bad facsimile of his uh, immaculate elvish handwriting? Anyway, I did. Uh, <laughs> I mean, thank God I don't have the letter, which is, was probably toe-curlingly embarrassing. But anyway, uh, I couldn't afford to send these three big volumes to him. So I thought, this is ideal. It's thin, it's light, it won't cost much to send, and I can include the postage for its return, which I did. So I sent it care of his publishers, um, George, then George Allen and Unwin, and it came back, and it came back with uh, a letter from a lady called M. Joy Hill, who was press officer. There it is. And uh, she will be known to many Tolkien people because yeah. it was to Joy Hill that Tolkien left the rights in Bilbo's last song. Right. Uh, and she wrote, Dear Mr. Sibley, Professor, this is um, 1969, 15th of January. Dear Mr. Sibley, Professor J.R.R. Tolkien has asked me to return your copy of The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, which he has autographed on the title page. And you will also see that on page 60, Professor Tolkien has made a correction to the last line of the poem on that page. Yours sincerely, for George Allen and with M. Joy Hill, press officer. And on page 60, uh, which is um, the uh, last verse uh, of um, the poem called The Sea Bell, <laughs> there is the correction. I mean, it's tiny. Um, so let me put it up. Whoops. Up. There we are. You can see it now. Yeah. Oh, wrong way. Oh, there you go. Okay. He's added the word I. To the last line so it says to myself i talk for still they speak not 
men that meet and it's men that I meet. Ah. And he signed the title page and uh, some years later I met for the first time Pauline Baines and with a great deal of effort because she was very reluctant to sign the book because she said it's worth a lot of money with the professor's signature in and you know I don't want to spoil it and I said but <laughs> my name's on the title page as well and I finally persuaded her to sign it and um there it is that's fantastic with both his signature and hers which is I guess probably I'm not saying it's one of the most valuable things that I own but it's certainly one of the most precious things that I own um absolutely uh, so I didn't follow up the conversation, probably the, the, the uh, correspondence. Probably if I had have done, I might have, you know, it might have gone on. But I was just thrilled to have had anything back. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, I still hadn't really read the big book. That's the problem. And then when I was 21, uh, I got uh, a thing called a duodenal ulcer, which meant I had to go into hospital in those days, not now. But in those days, people with ulcers used to lie, you had to lie on a hospital bed for three or four weeks mm-hmm. and eat nothing slops and do nothing uh, so it's horrible um yeah. and i i thought what am i going to do while i'm lying in this hospital bed for weeks so i got my parents to bring me two things um the book which was then in a one volume paperback um very f- famous volume which many people will be familiar with which was for many my generation a kind of a bible really it's this mm. with pauline bain's cover and and the back uh, showing uh, the Shire and on the back Mount Doom and Minas Tirith and a torch and I started re I forgot the prologue I left the prologue I just started with chapter one long awaited party and mm-hmm. just read and read and was totally hooked by about page 70 or 80 couldn't mm-hmm. put it down under the under the covers at night like a kid of six with a torch <laughs> reading after lights out so that's how I got bitten by the Tolkien bug um, yeah. I mean, I'm not an erudite scholar of, of Tolkien in the way that so many people I know and friends that I have, you know, I mean, the Thomas Shippies and the people I'm, I'm not in their league um, in any, any means, but I've never lost my passion for the, for the books. Uh, and of course, spending such a, amount, a close amount of time on the Lord of the Rings in adapting it, mm. uh, I have a kind of different kind of feeling to it about the book because yeah. I read it, first of all just loving it and then I read it again trying to dissect it and you know see how it worked you know right. what made it work so that's my kind of relationship with it now um the day coming up shortly which is Tolkien reading day I don't really know about mm-hmm. Tolkien reading day absolutely uh, and I'm reading um the Black Gates Open which is the chapter I've chosen to read for my slot um and just the moment i started just reading it through again and just thinking gosh you know i love i love the language i love the you know the the kind of formal uh almost um historic mm-hmm. style of writing that tolkien uses particularly in those grand episodes of drama and and the way that that just sits cheek by jowl in the book alongside the humor you know, mm. with Mary and Pippin or the early Hobbit chapter episodes, uh, alongside the mysticism of things like the scenes in um, uh, Lothlorien with Galadriel, for example, um, and the, the, the humour and tragedy mixed in the episodes with 
with Frodo and Gollum and Sam. Mm. Uh, I just love uh, the way the whole book, I mean, as I say, no editor today, I think, would sell, say to Tolkien, yeah, you've got it absolutely right. Most most editors would say this element doesn't work or that doesn't work, but mm-hmm. but but it works with him or for him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you mentioned Tolkien Reading Day. Um, that obviously, if you're not familiar with it, it's uh, it'll have passed by the time this episode comes out, but um, it's a great... Uh, day to celebrate <clears throat> Tolkien's works. It lines up with the destruction of the one ring on March 25th. Um, and every year, um, especially now that we're in a more virtual world today, um, they have a lot of online events um, and um, the all day, what you referred to is uh, the all day, um, you know, people t- sign up for slots and everything. I think I go a couple hours after you, actually, I'm going to be reading some from Helm's Deep. So, um, I'm looking forward to to just letting that play all day as people read read from Tolkien. Um, so, with uh, adapting for the audio drama format, um, you mentioned there you know there's some unique challenges, and I would imagine there's there's some unique things, uh, almost advantages with that format as well. Um, how did that come into play when you were? Uh, making Lord of the Rings and, you know, maybe what, what were some of the challenges and how did you overcome those? Well, yeah, there, there are real challenges. I mean, we we used a narrator. I think today where I'm doing yeah. it now, I've done lots of d- dramas since. Um, I dramatized all the Chronicles of Narnia, all seven mm-hmm. of those books. Uh, and those, I began using a narrator with those. But from that, I, I moved on to... to what is a real challenge is just to tell a drama without having a storyteller, actually. Um, and I've done that with the, the Gorman Gas novels of Mervyn Peake and um, with T.H. White's huge epic Arthurian romance, um, mm-hmm. The Once and Future King. And I've managed to do it. And I think if I was doing it today, I wouldn't use, I would try not to anyway. That'd yeah. Be- challenge would be not to use a storyteller but having a storyteller uh enabled us to deal with those things like place and location and description because the worst thing in the world is where actors have to describe things right the actor timothy west wrote a humorous play once for radio which was called this gun in my left hand is loaded um and uh, (laughs) it's full of (laughs) that kind of dialogue where you had to explain to the listener what was going on. Nobody ever in any film you've ever seen, (laughs) gangsters, you have never, ever heard a character say, my God, he's got a gun. You know, because (laughs) somebody draws a gun and they scream or they shoot or whatever happens. But nobody says, this is a gun and I'm not afraid to use it. Um, So the problem with radio is how do you know? How do you know that somebody is, in that case, drawing a gun? or unsheathing a sword. Well, you can hear the sound of it, you know, maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, nobody in a, in, a, in, a, in the real world would say if they were approaching the Golden Hall on horseback, before you, you see the great house of Theoden King. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't be doing it. You would, you would just do, be there and do Just one. go, yeah. So the problem with, with, which we had a narrator to help with, which was a great help, but just finding those moments where something dramatic happens. Like, for example, I mean, having mentioned Theoden, the moment at the Golden Hall where uh, 
Gandalf, who's of course not not given up his staff, saying it's his walking stick and so on, mm-hmm. um, then sub- subdues and, un- and unpowers Gimli, um, uh, Grima. Mm-hmm. Um, that moment, how do you how do you show that dramatically when you can only hear it? Mm-hmm. Visual moment. So all visual. That's why I said I was so scared of the idea of battles because a battle on radio, unless you've got something to hold it together, um, that that is not just people banging the things against something else. You know, right. saucepan lids. <laughs> <whatever>. <laughs> You know, because I went to the real armor, obviously. Right. Um, uh, and you can have the sound of galloping horses, but and neighing. But you know, what do you do? You have people going, "Oh my God, I've been hit!" You know, or <laughs> <laughs> you can't. You just can't do it. So you have to find ways around it, and it's a great challenge. The wonderful sequence that I love in the the, the radio version, uh, because I didn't know how we were going to resolve it, and. Um, Michael Bakewell resolved it himself for, for me, uh, which was brilliant, which is Theoden's ride. Uh, and he took Fourth Road the King, uh, and it was set to music, mm-hmm. and it it became a kind of running motif through that, that sequence mm-hmm. with battle scenes and bits of dialogue interspersed, interspersed but with this as though a ballad, as if a balladeer was telling the tale to you. Right. He had to write some mock Tolkien because there weren't quite enough verses to cover what he needed to. So he wrote more verses, which I don't think many people actually spotted, which is shows how well he did it. Yeah. Um, so there were there were moments, and we had we were lucky that we had a, a great composer, a guy called Stephen Oliver, who wrote a musical score. Um, the BBC aimed very high, and they were wanting someone like Sir William Walton, you know, I mean, a really noted composer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all turned down, turned down. But I had years before uh, a friend of mine, well known to who we known by name to many Tolkien inklings people, a guy called Roger Lansing Green, who was uh, a friend of both Tolkien and Lewis, mm-hmm. and Lewis's C.S. Lewis's first biographer, uh, had staged at his family home an open air production of uh, Alice, Alice Through the Looking Glass, oh, yeah. and. Stephen Oliver was a young student um, and he commissioned him to write a score for it. And it was a beautiful score. Um, and much of the orchestral music was very kind of pastoral and elegiac. And I just thought this, this man could do it. So yeah. I let the record to the producer. Um, and as a result, um, Stephen Oliver got the gig and he wrote this amazing musical score. So we used music a lot so for example when Gandalf um, gets Shadowfax and he mm-hmm. sees Shadowfax and calls to him uh, and then he wrote a piece of music which was the Shadowfax theme and it really didn't need very much other than a small amount of dialogue from Michael Horden as Gandalf and the sound of hooves and this music which sprung up like a kind of musical kind of motif which had all the kind of lightness and urgency of a galloping horse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were lucky. We had lots of ancillary things that we could do. We didn't have to say this, this sword in my left hand is sharp. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's a real problem. Those are real problems and sound effects. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> one thing I have a very vivid memory. We 
how did, uh, the, uh, Tolkien says that when um, when they that when they know they uh, Sam and Frodo know they're being pursued uh, and they don't yet know that it's Gollum, but they hear mm. this kind of flapping sound echoing down the corridors and uh, of stone. And uh, how do we create that sound? What do we do? You know, so they did all kinds of created all kinds of sounds and. They, I remember they had a, like a, a paddling pool, you know, the inflatable paddling pool, mm-hmm. uh, and they mushed up loads and loads of newspapers. So it was like a mass of paper mache wet, and people <laughs> slopped about in it. It didn't sound right. It just sounded like somebody wading through a puddle or something, you know. And um, there was a sound effects a girl who worked there. They, they had there's a thing called spot effects, um, which um, is where like somebody is going to. Uh, hit something with a sword against a shield so you know the actors got the script so they've got to read the script mm-hmm. uh, but this sound effects person will be ready for the cue to strike it near the microphone that the actor's on so it still sounds <clears throat> like it must be with that actor yeah on several occasions michael horden didn't smoke and i i was standing be- behind him lighting i was a pipe smoker in those days lighting my pope pipe to uh, <laughs> recreate the uh, the sound of a pipe being lit um anyway this particular uh, sound effect girl was a substantial lass and uh, she had a long kind of caftan tie dye dress on and we we didn't know what she was doing until we saw on camera because there's always a camera in the studio uh, what she was doing but she oiked up her dress and started slapping her thighs and that became the sound of Gollum's footsteps but for me now whenever I hear that scene I can't (laughs) see I can't see Gollum Gollum. all I see (laughs) is this lovely sound effects girl sitting there with a dress up uh, slapping her thighs to make the sound of the footsteps (laughs) I mean the bizarre things really in many ways but um uh you find ways of working around things. I think the the difficulty really, though, was the pressure because we did these episodes back to back to back, uh, half a day rehearse, then a day to record. Then uh, mm. so you'd, you'd, you'd finish recording uh, an episode and then you'd, the afternoon you would re- rehearse the next day and the next day you'd re- re- record that episode. And then the mm-hmm. following morning you'd do half a day's rehearsal half a day record, finish it the next day, rehearse the next day. It was exhausting. It was winter time. Everybody got flus and colds. Everybody was sick and getting sick and making each other sick. Uh, the director got incredibly angry with me because I became such a nuisance in pointing out things that were wrong. And, you know, I would say, but it's not right. The line's not right. And she would say, oh, for God's sake, we've done it three times and it sounds good. You know, leave it alone. Uh, and, if, and, and eventually I was banned from the studio. Um, I mean, ever since, years since I learned my lesson. And uh, whenever I attend a recording now as the adapter writer, I sit very quietly and I'll wait until my opinion is sought. Uh, um, <laughs> but then I couldn't resist, you know. I, and so I was sent to the green room, which was upstairs, actually, and I could see the actors through the, through the glass window looking, looking down on the studio. But it meant that if, if something was wrong, 
I had to run all the way down the stairs to the studio to point it out, which limited the number of times that I butted in. I'm glad, probably glad to say. So it was stressful um, and not always happy. Uh, not all the actors got on with each other, as is the way. And everybody, you know, it was a very, very hard slog. Um, and I was interested that Ian Holm in his later in his uh, autobiography said something like it was incredibly uphill work. And yet, I mean, he embraced the part totally, but, you know, he found it hard. And those other actors, particularly those who didn't really understand what the heck was going on, <laughs> were totally <clears throat> mystified by it and found it really stressful. There's a, there's a nice there's an actor called John LeMessure. I don't, do you have Dad's Army in America? Do you, do you know the comedy, TV comedy? Mm -hmm. It's about the, the home guard in Britain, a very yeah. popular Brit. And one of the actors there is an actor called John LeMessurer, and he played the old Bilbo in the mm. series. Right. And, uh, uh, I came across a, a reference to the series in his autobiography, um, or rather his wife's biography of him, but she quoted a letter that he wrote to another old actor friend of his, and he said, I'm doing this thing called The Lord of the Rings at the moment, I've no idea what it's about, uh, but it's jolly fun because I'm working with a lot of old friends like Michael Horden, and he mentioned a couple of other actors. So, you know, not all the cast were necessarily uh, totally aware of what was going on. <laughs> but if you're a good instinctive actor, you know, there are times when I think if an actor is really good, you don't necessarily need a, it's a terrible thing to say, Paz, but you don't necessarily need a, a cerebral understanding of the part if you just embody it, which is what good actors do. You know? I, the, one, of, one of the actors in the series, Peter Woodthorpe, was in the first English version of Waiting for Godot. Uh, and uh, along with a, another close friend of mine, now, now also deceased, Peter Bull. And both of them would tell me of, of the rehearsals for that difficult, inscrutable play. Uh, and how they were rehearsing it. And none of them really understood what it was about. Yeah. And, uh, on one occasion, Peter Brook, a, a great theatre director, who was directing this first English, production, English language production of Beckett's play, they were asking him, you know, well, what's this about? What are they, what, what, is, what are they waiting for? Who is Godot? <laughs> and Peter Brook said to them, look, loves, we've only got three weeks till we open. Don't let's start thinking about what it means, or we will never get it done. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter Peter Brook became not Peter Brook. I'm mis mis misblaming a, a totally innocent director. It's Peter Hall. Peter Hall, who later became um, the head of the of the um, National Theatre. Peter Hall was just willing to say, "We don't know what it's about. <laughs> don't, don't let's worry about it. Let's, let's just learn the lines and play." <laughs> Uh, there's something of that, I think, in, in our version of The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> so do you uh, do you have a favorite part or a favorite scene from uh, the audio drama? I know I'll, I'll mention I'm a I really enjoy the uh, um, Bill Nye's uh, when he sings in Western lands. Yeah, yeah. that is beautiful. Um, not one of my episodes, but I love it. And, and his performance of that i mean the the the, vulnerab the vulnerability of mm. singing of course without music i mean the music was written by by um, stephen oliver but he had to learn it and sing it and and uh, it's just yeah it is just perfect i have two two scenes i'd pick both my own not because i 
I mean, I've already mentioned the, the Battle of Lenor Fields uh, and Theoden's ride at Helm's Deep. I would rate as being probably two of my favourite um, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Bakewell episodes. I suppose the two that I wrote that I'm most fond of is the second episode, which is called The Shadow of the Past, which is just intense dialogue, which is just, you know, the, the back history of the ring. Yeah. Uh, and Gandalf, it's all the burdens all on Gandalf. Is he has to tell um, Frodo so much information. I mean, it's laden with stuff that you need to know. Yeah. It's a very funny piece on YouTube, which, um, well, it's not funny, but it's intriguing, where somebody has put up that sequence, that conversation between um, uh, Frodo and Gandalf, which is visually uh, Elijah Wood and Ian McKellen. But ah. the soundtrack is Ian Holm as Frodo and uh, um, Michael Warden as Gandalf. And they play the, the, the radio version against the visual. And Interesting. it's fascinating. fascinating. It's worth looking up because it's just such a curiosity. You look at it and you think, that is the scene, and yet it's actually completely different actors reading it. Yeah. And, and ironically, of course, the, the person reading, speaking for Frodo, is in that film. Bilbo, yeah. <laughs> and that's, of course, why, why Ian was asked to play Bilbo, because uh, Ian really want, Peter really wanted to have Ian somewhere in that, in that mm -hmm. film um, as a, an acknowledgement of the fact that he had been the the Frodo that he'd, he'd grown up listening to, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that, that synchronicity to me, uh, the first time I arrived in Wellington, uh, first visit, went to Weta Workshop, I arrived in the morning and the um, receptionist said, I'll oh, just go up the stairs, you know, somebody up there will take you to meet um, Richard Taylor. Uh, and I started walking up the stairs and the music from the radio version was playing somewhere <laughs> above. And I walked into what was one of the workshops where now a great friend of mine, Gino Acevedo, was working on the maquette for the, the face of the uh, scary Bilbo. Oh, uh, yeah. At, um, Rivendell, where he suddenly goes yeah. like, <laughs> he was making the model for that. And he was listening on a cassette player, or probably a, it was probably a CD player, uh, on his desk to the the radio Lord of the Rings. He didn't mm -hmm. know it was right. He didn't know it was coming, and that was to me was a sort of really amazing moment of synchronicity. You know, mm -hmm. like walking into this extraordinary place where they were making all these fantastic creations. Um, I mean, a group of people of such blinding talent as you know i mean i just loved every every moment i was in the company of those creative people um and uh, had developed a great friendship with with them i mean gino amongst them but but richard and and tanya and and all of the the, the sculptors and painters and model makers um i just loved what they did uh, and for me although i course i went back later to chronicle the hobbit movies right it wasn't the same because i remember going into a studio and seeing the the model of minas tirith you know this um the, the, they normally they call them miniatures of course but because mm -hmm. it was so huge right uh it was, they called them bigatures you know you probably knew that but yeah. um so there was this bigature of minas tirith 
And I was just utterly blown away, as I was with Helm's Deep, which they also created, of just the in, the intricacy and the detailing. Mm -hmm. You know, and they had to be detailed because the camera on Minas Tirith, when the Nazgul were flying around and so on, the camera, which was going to shoot the, the, the scene, had to be able to get in close. You had to be able to mm -hmm. see every little building and terrace and stairway and so on. And it was just the, ama the most amazing thing. Mm -hmm. And for me, what the later films lack is the fact that it was now possible digitally to create mm. those environments. Um, and, and they lacked, to me, they lacked something of, of the, I don't know what it is. I mean, you can't call it reality because it's a model, mm -hmm. but, but something which feels real, even though it mm -hmm. is a model. Feels tangible, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like, for me, the difference between, you know, I, you may know I've also written books about the work of Aardman Studio, mm -hmm. um, three-dimensional stop-motion animation. Yeah. Um, and I love the fact that when you're looking at the early Wallace and Gromits and Chicken Run and so on, that on the figures, the plasticine figures, you can see the, the imprint of the of the animator. It's like exactly like in it. It's not exactly like because one's a model and the other's drawn. But it's very similar to the, the effect that you have with excellent line animation because what you've got is, is something which actually, although it's a still photo that then becomes a series of moving pictures, although it's a still photo of a second in time, it, it has on it the imprints of the maker. And, mm -hmm. and I always felt that the miniatures and pictures of, of uh, Lord of the Rings were such a, a vital part of the creation of the atmospheres. And however brilliantly the CGI was done later for The Hobbit, Mm -hmm. For me, it didn't have that same intimacy. And the work, mm -hmm. I mean, the work of Weta Workshop is uh, just a miracle. Uh, and, and I think, you know, they, like Jackson, their experience had been quite limited in what they'd had to do, but what they'd done before. You know, I mean, they created some great schlock horror effects and things, but they <laughs> hadn't been called upon. And... I hope it's not arrogant to identify with this uh, myself, but it rather like I felt when I, without knowing how I was going to do it quite, stepped up to the challenge of turning this book into 26 episodes of radio drama uh, and writing half of it and working closely on it. Um, they just stepped up to do what they were going to do. And they suddenly found they had all these talents mm -hmm. you know it's like it, it, it's it was to me it was revelatory to, to go there and meet them uh and their um humility about what they were doing their their kind of absolute lack of the arrogance that you would have found if you were talking probably to a similar unit in a hollywood studio which had been making you know fine models and backgrounds and stuff for years and years and years it was a voyage of discovery. I mean, that's what I liked most about the, the Lord of the Rings film series, I think, was that it was it was itself was a journey, like the radio version. It was a journey. You know, our journey in writing the radio version lasted for, well, I, I suppose it was a year and a half in total or something from the mm -hmm. concept to breaking it down, to writing the scripts, to rehearsing, to recording. Um, and it felt like a journey that that itself felt like a journey and i think filming of the filming of the lord of the rings was itself 
another journey for those people, you know, that they all travelled. And that's why the actors all became their own real true life fellowship. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and and all and and true too of all the craftspeople and the you know the the hair designers and the makeup artists all of them became their own kind of army of of uh of friends and colleagues um which of course most film production companies don't you don't have the chance to do because you make a movie and then you move on and make another movie and mm-hmm. these guys were all locked into making a movie for several years and and that i think that sense of fellowship really shows in that in that film films yeah yeah Yeah. i think of as i think of the book as one book not three you know as as everybody knows it was never intended to be a trilogy Tolkien wanted it to be a book and it was financial considerations that led the publishers to chop it up into three parts so i always think of it as a book not a trilogy i mean it's so amusing that if you think of not just how people think of it as a trilogy, but also the fact that all those other writers since, well, certainly around the time, were churning out trilogies. You know, you couldn't write a fantasy novel. You had to write three because it had right, to be right. a trilogy because that's what you did. You know, if only they'd known, they could have just got away with writing one, you know, Guy Gavril Kay and people like that. So interesting. But uh, I think of it as one film, really, even though it is three films. Um, and it is a it is a real journey, and of course, for the viewer, like the listener, you take you travel that journey. And the book, I mean, let's face it: at the end of the book, when 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 um, Sam says, "Well, I'm back," you have completed, you know, your journey. And I know yeah. I know fans who are reader fans who, at that point, just go back to page one and start again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's again. Definitely, definitely bittersweet, bittersweet when you. When you get to those lines of sam's um sorry i'm getting a little echo there um so uh we'll back up just a little bit you mentioned you know obviously you've uh visited set there in new zealand um what uh what was your first reaction when you heard they were going to be making films uh based on lord of the rings having adapted it for radio yourself and knowing probably uh, better than most the uh, unique challenges of adapting, um, you know, and you, you had 13 hours to do it, which I guess, you know, uh, theatrical versions are about nine with uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So, you know, they're even dealing with, with less runtime. Um, so what, what was your reaction kind of having an inside knowledge of the, the challenges of adapting Tolkien? Well, uh... Obviously, yeah, what what are they going to do with it, I suppose? Uh, I mean, I have vivid memories of seeing the Bakshi film in the cinema and uh, being, well, confused by a lot of it, even though I knew the book by then. I mean, I was really puzzled at why Saruman was sometimes called Saruman and sometimes called Aruman. Aruman. And, you know, why why was that? I'm totally inexplicable. Um, I did, however, adore... And I don't think I shamelessly stole, but certainly modelled my opening uh, to the very first episode on Bakshi's uh, silhouetted um, History of the Ring, which Mm. is still, to me, uh, I remember it as being like a powerful piece of imagery. And I thought it was fantastic. Uh, When it came to the radio version, I have to say it went through, I don't know how many permutations. I mean, I wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. How can you simply tell this story? You know, how can you 
how can you whittle it down to enough information to give the the reader the listener rather um a concept of what is to come um and christopher tolkien saw the scripts and he was very helpful and we did come up with a you know a kind of a a, a narrated version uh to to tell where we are ending with um you know the uh, uh the ring still being sought for by the lord of the rings and then we went into mm. the open Music. so there was like a prologue to the series and uh and i was very fortunate because the year before 1980 the um the um um unfinished tales had been published and uh in it was the account of the hunt for for gollum mm. and i instinctively thought i'm going to use that i had to seek permission um, because it was not in the package that we of rights that had been bought, but uh, Christopher Tolkien was fine about it. So we we were able to come out of that opening montage before we went to Hobbit and then all the rustic kind of peasantry kind of nonsense and stuff. Before that, we had this scene where the the uh, riders are, are searching for well they don't they're searching for the ring and they stumble on Gollum and they take him to Baradur as is recorded mm -hmm. in tales, and he is tortured there and reveals what all he can remember which is the shire and bagginses and right. um and so a it meant that i was able to establish gollum right at the beginning of the of the series before you know long before we ever get to hear him because we don't really hear him until well the first appearance of him is of course when they're on the on the on the river Anduin, mm -hmm. uh, following the boat, um, but up to, there've been odd flapping noises and things in Moria, but you know nothing tangible. Um, so I was able to establish him several episodes before he he made his actual appearance. Um, but I did kind of well, the two things were kind of doubts in my mind about the film version. One was because the moment I heard, I looked to, to see what Peter Jackson had done. Uh, and I, my first reaction, I have to say, was, I don't think this man can possibly do this. You know, I mean, <laughs> I've got bad taste, um, you know, and I thought, well, I don't know. Um, uh, and I just thought that, why have they chosen this this person? Which, of course, is probably what most of the movie industry thought as well. Yeah. <clears throat> but there was a very memorable day. Um, I was, myself and... Um, uh, a friend of mine, Jane Johnson, who writes as, um, um, now I've forgotten her pen name, Jude Fisher. Um, uh, Jane Johnson and I, along with the people from um, HarperCollins, were invited to a screening of the of a, just a taster of footage. Mm -hmm. And we all had to sign NDAs, non-disclosure right. agreements, you know, we all went in wondering what was going to what it was going to be, and it was basically uh, there were a few bits and pieces, but essentially, what I remember most visibly from it were the scenes of the Black Riders and the Hobbits sheltering underneath the the, the tree roots, yeah. and then chase to the Ford, which was part of the, what they they also showed, um, with the raft going off and the Black mm -hmm. Riders coming to the end of the pier and stopping. And I can't remember quite else what was in it, but it was all, I mean, the stuff of Gandalf's arrival, I think, was in there. 
and Jane and I walked out of the theatre and we were kind of, well, I, I can't say numb, really. We were taken, we were stunned, stunned is what we were. And both of us looked at each other and said, it's going to work. You know, I think we both just instinctively knew, we both knew the world very well because Jane had been Tolkien editor at HarperCollins. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, she was the person who had managed to get the first illustrated version of The Lord of the Rings, illustrated by Alan Lee, accepted by the estate. I mean, she knew the books and was herself a writer of fantasy. So, you know, we both knew the territory really well. And we both looked at each other. And I think instinctively, we just knew this is going to work. Mm -hmm. um, so then I didn't have I didn't have any worries. By that point, we'd both, both she and I had both been signed up to, to do tie-in books. Uh, which was, you know, a delight. I, um, I remember seeing, uh, I'd worked with John Howe on the map books by that time, and I remember right. a bit of footage. This was part of the, the Peter Jackson pitch. I don't know whether we were shown it then or some other time, I can't remember. But anyway, it was what he had prepared to sell to New Line, the concepts. Uh, and uh, essentially, it was him talking about what he was going to do and so on. Uh, and there were a lot of panning shots across piles of books, you know, um, Shippy's Road to Middle-earth and uh, um, the original Atlas to Middle-earth and things like that. And there, in the middle of this display that they were panning across, were my books with John, the original mm. folk maps paper covered. And it felt just like, oh, my word, we're already part of this story, you know? Um and and I remember John Howe saying to me, I mean, he, he was very gracious to say it was our our front door, um, but because he'd drawn it, I hadn't. <laughs> the painting of Inside Bag End with the door open, which was the cover of the first of the map books, uh, and would later be in that combined one with the hole cut out so you could see the book inside. Um, he said when he was working on it, um, he, I think he showed me a piece of the concept art for for the Hobbiton scenes. And he mm -hmm. said, that's our door. Um, and, you know, I always felt I had some small, very, very small uh, bit of ownership in the film, you know, not more than that. But the real, real excitement, I think, for Jane and I was we were invited to, there was a, a huge press launch in um, Cannes uh, when mm -hmm. really it was the Minds of Moria sequence that was shown, plus some early stuff of Gandalf so it didn't all look too dark and sinister and we went to the screening of that I think it was 20-25 minutes something like that and this theatre which was full of press people who are not mm -hmm. apt to go mad about movies to be honest erupted I mean it just erupted uh, I think it was I think it was if I'm right I may have got this wrong um, but I think that the cinema it was shown at which was called the Olympia I think um, was the theatre where years before at the Cannes Film Festival they'd shown Bad Taste. Mm. I think it was Bad Taste they showed there. Uh, or, I don't know, or Frighteners or whatever it was. But anyway, whatever the film was that was shown there. Um, and, you know, one of their early films, which was a real renegade production, was shown mm -hmm. there. And now what was being shown there was this taster for a film that was going to be the biggest kind of, you know, amazing film everybody was already saying and and um that evening the studio uh had hired a 
chateau just outside of Cannes. Mm -hmm. And we all went to this fantastic party. I've never been to anything like it in my life before or since, where the whole of the grounds of this chateau were had been transformed into parts of Middle Earth. Um, the, there was the one of the trolls under the trees. I mean, you know, huge, towering. They'd built a hobbit hole that you could actually go into and walk around. The interior of the of the castle had been turned into Theoden's Hall with the throne and the banners, and it was just extraordinary. And lots of funny things too. So oh, there was a there was a, a, a replica of the of the prancing pony where you went to get your drinks. Mm. And uh, it was built at human size, and we were all then reduced to hobbit size. Hobbit size. The bar, <laughs> the bar was way up there, and they had very tall actors standing on boxes or stilts behind the bar, so they <laughs> towered above you to serve you. Uh, and I remember that they had um, they ha had portaloos, you know, for, for for conveniences for people to uh, use, and the, the, they just looked like regular portaloos. But when you went in it, uh, unsuspecting, there was just gentle music playing. And then suddenly there'd be the charge of the Rahirim. So you're <laughs> in, this, in this cubicle with thundering horses and screaming and clashing armors. <laughs> uh, it was an amazing event. And Jane and I were hugely privileged because we, we were given kind of access all parts because we were writing our books. And uh, there was a green room set aside in the chateau um, for the cast, so they mm -hmm. could escape from the interviews and all the rest of it. And we shared their well, shared. <laughs> we cohabited their green room, which was fantastic. Um, and I remember taking the proofs of the first of my books because the first book about the Lord of the Rings that Jane and I wrote were written before we'd seen anything. You know, we had oh, to write. Wow. We had to write it over the winter of. 2000 so that it was ready to go for publication in 2001 yeah so we had we had uh texts of what are called epks which are electronic press kits which is interviews that they had done with the cast members mm -hmm. we were given disposal of uh, access to all of that and lots and lots of pictures and stuff so much of what we did was was built on nothing frankly the first <laughs> book um but i remember taking the proofs with me and one of the things we'd done was to in my book, in order to occupy as many pages as possible, <laughs> so little to go with, uh, was a whole page portrait of all the fellowship, uh, all nine of them, with facing it a page about the actor who was playing it. So there was a sort of major uh, um, portrait picture, and then mm -hmm. facing it, there was a piece about uh, Ian McKellen and Ian Home and so on. And uh, we took the proofs with us of our first book so that the the cast members could just check it for veracity, mm -hmm. quoting them. And I remember it was one of my, wasn't my first encounter with Christopher Lee. If you ask, remind me, I'll tell you about that. But um, it was a memorable um, encounter with him because I'd written about Christopher Lee's, and of course, you know, the most film, filmed actor ever. Yeah. Yeah. Book records. Uh, and I had talked about his roles, many roles, but of course, inevitably had talked about Dracula. Right. And um, I remember sitting there with him. Everybody else has read their piece, Sean Bean and uh, uh, Vigo. They all read their piece and signed off on it. It was fine. But of course, when I got to Christopher, he's reading it. He's going, now, just a moment. I don't think uh, I, <clears throat> I don't think I ever played Dracula in 
as many as eight movies, <laughs> like whatever it was. So I said, oh, I think you did. Uh, I think you did, Christopher, or Mr. Lee, I probably said then. Um, and he said, well, did I? Well, even if I did, I don't think we need to mention all of those. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, it, he always, um, he amused me so much because he was, you know, he was, <laughs> I mean, he was such a brilliant actor and I loved him and I loved his work, but he was so, he was so self-obsessed, you know, he was so uh, full of himself is, is a demeaning term. I don't really mean that, but he was so aware of his own presence. <laughs> uh, and he couldn't grasp the fact that playing Dracula had been the thing that had made him known mm. throughout the world. I'd love throughout the world, you know? <laughs> um, and this enables me to tell you the story of how my first ever meeting with him. Uh, because I want to draw the contrast between him and Christo and um, between Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, mm. because they were so often linked in movies. Yeah. And I first met Christopher Lee in the company of Peter Cushing when I was a young man, many, many years before any of all this stuff ever happened. I was trying to write a book about actors, book of profiles. And I approached lots of people I knew or people who who were friends of people I knew. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, somehow or other, I wrote to Peter Cushing, who turned out to be an absolute sweetie. I mean, a real beautiful person. And he wrote back and said, oh, yes, yes, please come. I'd love to, you know, to meet you and be interviewed. Come down to Pinewood where he was filming Pinewood studio in Britain. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went down uh, and he was making a film. I, ooh, I should have checked this before I started telling the story. I think it was <laughs> something like called something like nothing but the night or something. Like that. It was a hammer horror film, not a, not a kind of Dracula Frankenstein horror film, but it was set in a hospital and the, uh, the uh, Cushing and Lee were both medics. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and Diana Dawes was the leading lady in it. So I was introduced to by Peter Cushing, who was an absolute gent and treated me beautifully, took me around the studio, took me to lunch in the commissary, um, showed me all behind the sets, you know, how you could be in a, a kind of Peruvian high street and then you go through and you're in a Cornish village square on the other side yeah. um, and really looked after me and gave me a wonderful time for me it was just like it was magic I was in a film studio watching actors act and so on and all the, the bits I picked up on so many things like Cushing was a chain smoker and always wore a white glove on his right hand when he was smoking so that he didn't nicotine nicotine mm. his fingers because he wore he smoked um, non-filter cigarettes um, and how he had this guy who stood in for him I'd never understood about stand-ins at all until I was there. <laughs> and Peter would be sitting in his, you know, um, canvas back chair, the way you see with the name on the back. And there would be his stand-in standing on there while they measured the length of the vocal, um, of the um, uh, vocal length of the camera and lens mm -hmm. and so on. Focal length, not focal. Focal length of the lens. And then when they were all happy, ready to go, uh, he stepped, Paddy, his name was, he stepped out of the frame and Peter got up, took off his white gloves, stepped in and did the scene. You know, and I, all that was a revelation to me, but he was lovely. And um, he he uh, gave me a long interview in his dressing room after we after the filming was over. And I remember being utterly intrigued by the fact that he took off 
his wig because he had this, as you know, this sort of widow's peak here. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he took off the wig and he was quite, you know, very hair, much receding, and then put on his personal wig, which was <laughs> quite, as developed, you know, was thinning, but he, he still wore a little wig. Anyway, he was lovely to me. And um, I remember at the end of the interview, I, I said, thank you very much. And he said, and now, dear boy, how are you getting home? Where do you live? I said, oh, I live outside of London in Kent. Oh, my goodness, that's a long way. So you go into London first? I said, uh, yes, I do. Well, he said, and how are you going to do that? I said, oh, by undergoing. No, 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 that's not thinkable, dear boy. No, uh, Paddy, Paddy and I will drive you into London and you can get your train. So I had this, God help me, I cannot remember a thing about the conversation. I drove from Pinewood Studios, I'm probably 45 minutes or an hour, I don't know, from out <laughs> in the country into the centre of London, sitting in the back of this, um, I don't know what it was, but, you know, chauffeur-driven car. Paddy the stand-in was also his chauffeur. Uh, with Peter Cushing. And I, I, you know, heaven help me, I can't remember what we talked about. But anyway, <laughs> magic. So, fast forward a few, oh, a few months, maybe a year, I don't know. Uh, and my best friend and I have gone to the BAFTAs. The BAFTAs in those days mm -hmm. was a low-key event. And it was held at the National Film Theatre in London. And uh, my mate and I hired our DJs from the hire shop and rocked up to this. We bought, bought, bought a ticket. You could do that in those days. Mm. And we go to sit down. And lo and behold, I realise I'm sitting behind Christopher Lee. So I'm uh, wanting to be a bit swanky and showy off to my chum. When the BAFTA thing was over and everybody started getting up, I tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around and I said, uh, Christopher Lee, and he said, yes. Uh, and I said, um, I, I don't suppose you'll remember me. And he said, no. <laughs> I thought, well, I've got to try and explain now because my, my friend is looking at me like, well, yeah, you really know this man? Of course you don't know it. So I said, well, I met you on the set of whatever the film was called um, with Peter Cushing. And he said, did you? <laughs> so I mean, I'm now lost completely. I've got nothing left to say. You know, what can you say? I mean, you know, he doesn't remember me. He's obviously not going to engage with me. <laughs> and so I said, in desperation, I said, how is Peter? And he looked at me completely withering look and he said we don't live together you know <laughs> <laughs> and walked away and that was it uh years later uh, when working on the films uh i took him to lunch and I, I was then a member of a london club and i took him to the club for for lunch and i i reminded him of it and he was i have to say appalled that he said oh my god i can't imagine i did that to you <laughs> But, uh, but um, whereas Peter Cushing, um, who I interviewed several more times when he was writing his autobiographies, uh, I, I I just adored Peter's attitude to his to his fame. You know, for, mm -hmm. for Peter, he absolutely. I mean, Peter was a Peter Cushing was a fine actor. There's not a lot of evidence of it. Um, sorry, that's not fair. But I mean, I'm talking about his non-horror acting. There's not mm -hmm. a lot examples of it obviously the star wars but right. um you know on as a stage actor uh, he he was much revered and much praised um you get a glimpse of him playing osric in the jewel scene at the end of uh um lawrence olivier's hamlet 
where he, where he plays the part there, part he'd played on stage, in fact. Uh, and he's fantastic. He's absolutely fantastic in it. And there's one or two films he made, which are straight films. They're not Hot Hammer, which show how good he was. And there's the, I think it's on, you can find it on YouTube, um, the BBC version of um, 1984, in which mm. he played Winston Smith, which was an exceptional performance. And he played Mr. Darcy for the BBC, but none of these, much of this archive stuff doesn't exist anymore because mm. tell you live and, you know, it wasn't preserved and wasn't recorded. So right. you, know, you either saw it or you missed it. That's how it was. Uh, but he, nevertheless, despite his, you know, real acting chops and how good he was, he just accepted the fact that this notoriety that he'd achieved through uh, the, the Dracula and Frankenstein movies and the other Hammer films he was in, he accepted that and embraced it. And he was gracious to his fans, always. You know, you would never have heard Peter Christian saying, I didn't make X many uh, <laughs> versions of Dracula or Frankenstein because that was fine. You know, that was mm -hmm. fine. Whereas Christopher, who never had, I don't think, the opportunities really to display either on the stage or on film his many examples to display his straight acting. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, there's the Bond film and one or two other things he did. But, but basically, he was locked into that persona and somehow was unhappy with it, you know. Mm, yeah. But uh, I'll tell you just um, – are we, are we okay? We're still talking. Is this all right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you just two things about, about um, Christopher um, subsequently. And I say we, we became good friends. Um, well, if you could become good friends, <laughs> Christopher. <laughs> uh, one of them was <clears throat> at the premiere of uh, – the two towers uh, in Paris when uh, I was invited to um, uh, um, I'm trying to think who, whose birthday it was um, young Mr. Monaghan's I think it was mm. uh, and the whole fellow all the cast were there and we were we were sitting around the table and I was seated with on one side of me Richard Taylor who by then I was good friends with and on the other side of me was Christopher and his wife Geeta. And the conversation, I mean, it's great. I mean, I was just, I could see in awe. I was sitting opposite Liv Tyler, who I hadn't previously met because she'd filmed all the stuff that she'd done for the film long before I got involved with it. Mm -hmm. um, but Vigo was there and, and all the hobbits and uh, Ian and so on. It was a fantastic evening, uh, hosted by Barry Osborne. But I didn't know it was hosted by Barry Osborne, so I was slightly anxious about being a very, uh, very chic French restaurant. I'd been invited, but I didn't know whether we were paying our own way. Mm. So I was slightly anxious because I'd gone to Paris for this premiere, but wasn't carrying, you know, masses of, of, <laughs> of euros with me. Um, we're sitting there, and my my mate Richard Taylor. We'd been running around comic shops most of the day in Paris, and Richard suddenly said to me. Um, uh, Brian, where do you get these euros from? And uh, I said, well, what do you mean, Richard? And he said, well, you know, I've only got New Zealand dollars. And, and I said, well, Richard, you're staying at the Four Seasons Hotel. Just ask the concierge. They'll change your New Zealand dollars for euro. <laughs> and uh, he went, oh, really? I mean, like, you know, but uh, I mean, he, he really hadn't ever been, you know, outside. I mean, he was... He 
and or I loved about Peter about um, uh, Richard was that he never and Peter too actually that they never lost that uh, innocence of what they were mm. really even yeah. under with all the success that came. I remember later having breakfast uh, at the Dorchester in London with Richard Taylor where where we had breakfast with his two Oscars on the breakfast table. <laughs> He couldn't bear to leave them in the room. He had to bring them down and put them on the table in the breakfast room. <laughs> uh, but so so there's Richard doesn't know about euros and and uh, bless him. So I said so he said well I haven't got any euros tonight. If we have to pay for this meal, uh, could you could you help me out and you know I'll settle out with you tomorrow. So I said yeah yeah okay Richard thinking oh my god I've got to pay for my meal and. <laughs> And then the meal wore, wore on, and um, just before the speeches started, I think Christopher got wind of the fact that there were going to be, you know, speeches and stuff. So he leant over to me and he whispered, and he said, Gita and I are terribly tired, and uh, I really need to get my sleep because tomorrow's going to be an exhausting day, and uh, so we need to retire. So be a decent guy, will you, and just pick up my uh, tab this evening, and I'll settle with you tomorrow. <laughs> So there I am sitting there thinking, I'm now paying for four dinners in this expensive French restaurant. Well, I wasn't because Barry Osborne, the producer, picked up the tab and nobody paid. But um, uh, when when my biography of Peter came out, I was sitting with my husband, David, in the local pub, having a drink, enjoying a, a pub lunch. And the phone rang and I picked it up and a voice said, is that Brown Sibley? And I said, ah, oh, Christopher, how are you? And he said, how did you know it was me? And I said, <laughs> uh, I mean, like, how do you know it's Christopher Lee? I mean, right. like, he said, I, I was disguising my voice. And I thought, well, not terrible. <laughs> so he said, um, I've just been reading this book of yours about Peter. Very good, very good. Uh, I said, oh, thank you. He said, yes, but there's something I'd like to clarify. Now, when, as you know, Saruman gets bumped off, actually, in the Two Towers, rather mm -hmm. than uh, in the scouring of the Shire, uh, he was, there's a, there's a famous sequence, as described by Peter, he's described it in several places, which is where, when um, Grimer stabs, when Brad Dourif stabs Saruman in the back, Peter mm -hmm. had said to Christopher, cry out, scream out, and then you're going to plunge to your death and christopher had said to peter no 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 peter no nobody who's stabbed in the back ever screams out they can only <sighs> exhale because the, the shock is so great they don't they never scream and i know this because i was a member of the sas <laughs> and peter had gaily told me this story and i put it in the book hmm. so now i've got Christopher on the phone. Now, this incident about the uh, SAS business that uh, Peter told you about, it's not accurate, actually, uh, because I wasn't in the SAS. I was in the SAS reserve. So I said, oh, dear, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, maybe I can correct it in a later edition. No, no, you don't yeah. need to correct it. It's just that um, I, I don't want uh, you to be under any, you know, misunderstanding about what the truth was. And I have spoken this morning to the head of the SAS and explained the situation to him, <laughs> in case he happens to read the book and, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, 
uh, concerned about it. But I don't think you need to do anything exactly. But, um, you know, I just wanted you to know. So I said, oh, okay. Anyway, he then steamed on talking away. I'm very conscious that my battery and my phone is on the blink and probably going to run out. And he had just been not filming, as it turned out, Sweeney Todd for Tim Burton. Oh, right. And uh, he said, I, I'm, I mean, I'm appalled. I mean, I'm appalled. I mean, I should have been in the third Lord of the Rings film. And I mean, I was cut out of it by having this absurd death of Saruman in the second part, which was not where I should have died at all. Uh, and now I've had the indignity of filming Sweeney Todd, and I've now been cut out of that. So I said, oh, really? He said, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I was the chorus. Uh, now, Sweeney told the, the opera musical opens. Stephen Sondheim wrote uh, a kind of chorus, really, and all mm -hmm. the people are singing together, attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. His, right. his eye was on. So he said, rather than have a chorus, I was there. A spotlight, dark, completely black. A spotlight illumines me from above. And I start singing a tender tale of Sweeney Todd. His face was like, and I'm sitting there thinking, my God, I've got Christopher Lee singing Stephen Sondheim on my mobile phone. I can't <laughs> believe it. Anyway, the conversation went on and on and on. And I'm on the point. We were now walking home from the pub to where we live. And I'm trying to bring the conversation to an end before the battery runs out. Right. I said, I've really got to go, uh, Chris, so I'm sorry, but, you know, the battery is going. He said, oh, right, okay. Well, I just want to say one thing to you. He had told me earlier to this a rather racy story about somebody connected with the film. My lips are sealed. <laughs> uh, and he, so just as we're parting, he said, I just want to say that that story I mentioned to you about so-and-so, earlier if if you ever tell anybody about it then there will be some very severe repercussions <laughs> i wasn't a member of the sas as such but i have many good friends who are still members of the sas <laughs> and i just had this vision you know of suddenly men in balaclavas and dressed in black would be leaping out from the hedges and grabbing hold of me and dragging me off somewhere to be interrogated um <laughs> you know i mean i loved him because he was so uh larger than life uh, and mm -hmm. amazing and i for the bonus discs of the dvds of the mm -hmm. Lord of the uh and the hobbit actually i interviewed him many times in london um you don't see me interviewing him but i'm asking the questions that are then used for the 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 uh, cut-ins Mm -hmm. uh, and he was always difficult. Um, you know, one day he showed up and said, now, I'm not spending another two hours on this interview today, Brian. I want you to understand. Gita has said to me, you cannot do it. You know, do you know how old I am? I mean, I'm not a young man. I mean, <laughs> energy, I'm very fit, but I'm not young. And I mean, I get very tired. So I'm not doing more than an hour today. So I said, oh. Very well, that's fine. Thank, thanks for the clarity, Christopher. We go into the room in the hotel where we're filming, and I say to the crew, now, look, Christopher can only do an hour today, so please, we need to focus. We need to do everything quickly mm -hmm. uh, and give uh, Christopher time to go home. Yeah, thank you very much. So we start recording. And um, uh, Michael Pellerin, who was the person who was responsible for all those bonus DVDs, 
always gave me more than enough possible questions. So she's the questions. So I'm talking to Christopher and I'm getting on and I'm keeping an eye on my watch. And uh, we get to a moment where we're really running down and uh, we finally hit the hour mark. And I say, well, Christopher, thank you. That was fine. That's fine, everybody. That was a take. Uh, stand down. Christopher's got to, uh, we just get Christopher his car and he's got to go. And he went, well, I haven't mentioned anything about you know, something else that I wanted to talk about. There's that <laughs> sequence, you know, the Council of Elrond and, and uh, uh, the, the the White Council, rather, the, the, that scene, I wanted to talk about that. And I said, well, Christopher, we've, we've run the hour. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, all right, well, let's just do a little more. And, of course, you know, a little more led on to another hour. And then we closed down and he still stood talking to the crew and you know, <laughs> the camera. I remember working with a cameraman in Tottenham. Uh, so he was quite impossible. And I'm sure he got home and then Gita said, that's another two and a half hours. And he said, yes, well, it's that man, Sibley. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I got the blame. But I loved him, for, you know, just for his wonderful eccentricity, really. You know? Yeah, we uh, we actually I spoke with uh, um, Ian Nathan, um, who wrote the the uh, uh, Peter Jackson book, Anything You Can Imagine. And he told me a, a story on here about Christopher Lee, where Christopher Lee mistook him for catering um, while he was on a set visit. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a, a larger than life figure for sure. Yeah, wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, briefly, you uh, you know, we talked about uh, your map books with John Howe and um, your uh, the official movie guides that you did for all the Middle Earth films. Um, and then you you briefly touched on that. You also wrote a biography for Peter Jackson. So what was what was that process like? Uh, difficult, <laughs> to be honest. Peter, um, because he was doing so much, was very elusive and it was quite hard to pin him down. Um, uh, there was an unofficial biography um, by a writer called Ian Pryor uh, who had um, worked with Peter but the, but the relationship was not what it had been uh, and he was very unhappy that there was going to be this unofficial biography coming out of him mm. and I think I, I've never discussed this with, with him or Fran actually but I suspect that the conversation in the Jackson household went something like, well, why don't you get Brian to do it? Um, because, you know, he's sympathetic to you and the project and all Tolkien and everything. So maybe you should ask him. But anyway, yes, I was asked to do it. And it's why I only wrote two books about The Lord of the Rings as opposed to the three that I was mm-hmm. commissioned to write because I was then deep in trying to write this biography. Uh, so it was a kind of a um, it was a kind of a race. Well, it wasn't a successful race because Pryor's book came out prior to mine, um, but uh, it was the two things I can say about it. One was it was very difficult because Peter really just didn't have the time mm. to give me the interviews that I needed until after I'd been in New Zealand. I arrived in New Zealand and spent several days doing stuff and then I thought I was going to see Peter and then Peter had to fly to London to supervise the scoring of I think it would have been probably the two towers by that point Mm -hmm. I imagine Uh, 
And don't worry, Brian, I'll see you in London. We'll pick up in London. We'll, we'll do the interviews in London. Uh, when I got back from New Zealand to London, he was he had flown to LA for the Oscars. Uh, but we'll catch up on the way back from the Oscars, which we did briefly. But most of my interviews with him were conducted for that book, not in person, but were actually conducted down the telephone. Uh, and it was, by this time, he was filming Kong. Was that right? Or was, yeah. he, Return, or was he doing pickups on The Return of the King? Probably pick oh. up. No, it may have been Kong, actually. I'm not sure. Can't remember. Uh, so either I spoke to him at 8 o'clock in the morning his time when he was ready to go to, to the shoot or edit, whichever he was doing that day. So I had him for an hour before he went to work. Or I had him at 8 o'clock at uh, in the morning my time which was eight o'clock at night his time when he'd just come off set or out of the editing suite so he was always either geared up to go on whatever he was going to do or was exhausted from what he'd just done yeah but long 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 detailed phone conversations all of which we recorded and were then um, transcribed uh, and used for the the well really what is the body of that book mm-hmm um, what I'm happiest about the book, and I mean, it's now been superseded by another biography, of course, but what I'm happiest about it is that because I had so much material, and not just from Peter, but from all his friends, because the great asset of not having Peter to interview meant that I was able to interview, um, you know, all the guys who'd worked with him on the on the uh, Bad Taste movies and mm-hmm. uh, those early projects. Um, who were his chums from work and so on, had known him as a kid, but also to meet with co-workers at the newspaper where he worked, um, school teachers, um, friends, just people who knew him. Yeah. Uh, and it gave me a really good picture of the young Peter Jackson. Um, and also I was able to, of course, meet all those people that he worked with at Wetter and get their stories about him. So, you know, I got a lot of a lot of stuff, and then people like Barry Osborne and Mark Wodeski had all been very involved in the whole process of of how the Lord of the Rings came to be made. So the film is, I think, a pretty good account of the the story of how that film got to got to be made. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot there that that's I don't think anywhere else. Well, of course, a lot's on the DVD extras now, but but right. I think. Even Michael Pellerin was saying to me the other day, there is stuff in, in your book which is it's not actually on camera anywhere. Yeah. Um, so that was great. Uh, it wasn't great, uh, and this I'm not criticising Peter for this, but it wasn't great uh, for to arrive back at the hotel I was staying in in Wellington called the Duxton. Um, and I had a really bad fall the day before. I just, I just for the first time had very focal glasses totally missed my step on a curve, <laughs> fallen down, cut my hand open very badly. So I was sort of bowed up like like uh, the Invisible Man or the Mummy. <laughs> um, and uh, I came back to my hotel only to face the only time in my life it has ever happened or will ever happen, that I was doorstepped by a bunch of press guys who were waiting in the lobby. And when I came in, um, they didn't recognise me because they didn't know who they were looking for. But I went over to the reception desk to get my key and the receptionist gave me my key and said, oh, these gentlemen are waiting to see you. And suddenly I'm being, people are snapping photographs. And I'm trying to say, can I just, can I get my bandaged hand out of the way? And, <laughs> and what's this all about? 
And what I didn't know was that Peter had left for London on that very day. And at the airport, he'd been asked about the fact that there was an unofficial biography coming about him. Mm-hmm. And Peter had said, as he was getting on the plane, oh, no comment. I, I refer you to my official biographer, Brian <laughs> So suddenly there I was with all these press people who wanted to, to what was happening, what was the story behind the unofficial biography, what was my book going to say. Uh, it was a nightmare, and I had no idea how to handle it. You know, I, it was totally unexpected. <laughs> so eventually I said, look, I'm sorry, I've, I've had a very bad accident. I, I need to get some rest. Um, if you come back, I had a suite, fortunately. I was Because I was there for such a long period of time, I had a two-room room. So I, I, I wasn't always sitting in my bedroom, if you, you know what I mean, when I was working. Mm-hmm. So I had a separate room, which I could use as a to be interviewed or yeah. interviewed. Uh, so I said, I'll give an interview at such and such a time. Uh, and they came in and I gave my interview. And then I posed for a picture for them on the stairs of the hotel where there was a huge circular gold-rimmed mirror. So I was able to stand in it, keep the arm out of the way. <laughs> and then they had a kind of rings, me in the middle of a ring, gold ring type picture to use. Uh, so that was my bit of notoriety, but it was absolutely <laughs> terrifying. Uh, and, and of course... Uh, meant that everybody then, because it was in the paper, the, um, the Wellington paper the next day, uh, everybody in the area who I might have spoken to, everybody knew that I was there and what I was doing. And it's a small, you know, it's a city, but it's like a small town. Right. So I can't go anywhere without everybody. Oh, you, oh, you're the guys writing the book about Peter. Yes, <laughs> yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> a restaurant, you know. Can I can I have a beer? Oh, you're the guys writing about Peter. Yeah, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always silently thank Peter for that bit of unwanted publicity. Bless him. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm proud of the book as it appears. Um, by the time it, I'd done all the interviews, he was working on Kong. And so I was able to route the whole film around King Kong because mm-hmm. you know, it had been the film that he did so impressed him as a, as a kid yeah. um, and which he had wanted to make all his life and had wanted to make before he ever hit on the idea of making Lord of the Rings. He was, you know, gunning to make a, a, a remake of, of King, King Kong. Right. Sadly, the remake, when it got made, was never... I think, I guess, I don't know, I've never talked to him about it since, but I guess was probably not quite the film that he had had in his mind that he would mm. do. But I remember on the night of the, I think it was the screening in Wellington of The Two Towers, I think it must have been that, and uh, he didn't go to the screening. This was at the Embassy Theatre. It was just a f- first screening for, for people. But I think he was expected to be there. But he wasn't there because he was at um, the the viewing theatre in, in Wetton Workshop, um, where he, we, he was showing the original print of King Kong, which mm. was passing through somehow. He got his hands on it, and he could only got one night to show it, so he was going to watch it again. And so he had his own little party in in the cinema at his own studio there um, to show King Kong. So while everybody was waiting and hoping to see him at the Embassy Theatre to see the two towers, he was, or maybe in Return of the King, whatever it was, yeah. he was actually 
watching King King Kong. <laughs> and I was sitting about two or three rows behind him. And when it came to the the bit where the on the boat they 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 they're looking at the bombs that they're going to throw to to um, stun Kong, he's suddenly holding up. He's got the two prop bombs there, <laughs> and he's going, "These are the bombs! These are the bombs! These are the actual bombs that are used in the film!" You know, and <laughs> it was for me, it was just amazing because what I was realized was that here was a man who, you know, could have been. He probably wouldn't have enjoyed the film because he'd seen it so many times by then. He could have been watching his own movie, mm -hmm. the adulation of the audience who would have been adulatory, whatever, you know, whatever he thought of it. Uh, but he chose to watch his favorite film yeah. privately with a bunch of people from Weta and, and whoever else was around like me, uh, you know, with popcorn on supply in the foyer so you could get a, get popcorn and and uh, fizzy drinks. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that sums up so much of Peter. To yeah. Me. yeah. I mean, I went back for The Hobbit, but um, The Hobbit was a different kettle of fish. I mean, in mm. so many ways, kettles of fish, as it turned out. Um, and it was different for lots of reasons. One, because, not to speak ill of Warner Brothers, but Warner Brothers I did not approach the film making or, the, or those associated with the film in the same way that New Line had done. Mm -hmm. New Line made those of us, like Jane Johnson and myself, made us feel like we were part of the team. Mm. You know? Yeah. I, we felt as though, although we were only doing, you know, ancillary publicity, putting mm -hmm. it bluntly, um, we were part of what was being made and we were treated in that way. I mean, as I say, access all parts. No, nowhere is out of bounds. I can wander where I wanted, um, and everybody just adopted me while I was there. I could, you know, everybody looked after me, became friends, amazing relationships. Uh, and if I was ever privy to anything that was where something was not going right, I remember travelling in a car with Barry Osborne and Michael Desky, and some rather tense conversations were going on on the phone. And at the end of it, um, Marco Desky turned to me and said, you didn't hear any of that, did you? And I said, hear any of what? And, <laughs> and he said, um, exactly. Um, and uh, when I got out of the car, I said, oh, thanks for the lift back. And we'd come from, I don't know, a location or studio set somewhere. And uh, and I got out of the car. I said, um, just to be clear, Mark, I was never in this car. <laughs> you know, but everybody there was uh absolute kind of trust and confidence between us mm -hmm. as outsiders and part of the whole um three ring circus of the yeah. thing uh, but with the hobbit it was completely different and it was much more controlled uh those guys new line were not um running the show um and and it was a big big studio with different issues and different anxieties i'm sure and mm -hmm. you know, financial and uh yeah fiscal problems that were you know of great concern to them with a pro production that's taking place thousands of miles away from where they where their head office is yeah so you know, it was a different game altogether but i enjoyed being there um, lovely you know lovely moments i remember peter showing up at the studio when they were filming the the um the, the party scene with, mm. with uh, the um, fireworks and all the rest of it and the, all the Hobbit children and so on. 
um, Peter showing up in his copy of the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang car. <laughs> one of his many, many cars in his great collection. Uh, I mean, that was a, that was a magic, magical moment seeing Peter Jackson in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, uh, and, you know, I enjoyed the films, but I didn't, looking at them afterwards, I don't think I enjoyed them in the same way as I did The Lord of the Rings. And I think mm -hmm. it was to do with the fact, I think if, I think if Guillermo del Toro had made the film, mm -hmm. uh, whether it would have been a film, as opposed to three or two, I've no idea. Yeah. But if he had made The Hobbit, it would have been an immensely different film. It wouldn't have, I, and I think if it had been different, I don't think it would have clashed with The Lord of the Rings. I don't think it would have impinged on The Lord of the Rings. I think people would have just accepted that this is Guillermo's Del, del Toro's Hobbit, rather mm -hmm. like you know Pan's Labyrinth or right. any other film that he made. And they would have accepted it on its own individual, unique terms. And I don't think they would have said, oh, well, it's not like the Lord of the Rings. I don't think they would have said that. But the mm -hmm. moment Peter became involved, it had to have the same look. It had right. to feel and look the same as the Lord of the Rings. And it gave him the opportunity, of course, to address all of those things which are on the edges or even not even on the edges of The Hobbit. You know, where does mm -hmm. Gandalf go when he abandons uh, the dwarves and, and, and uh, Bilbo when they're about to mm -hmm. go into, into Mer Where is he? Why does he drop out of the picture? Well, of course, at the time, Tolkien was pretty mysterious about it when he was writing it. Right. And later, of course, did, did we know that he was actually going to the White Council or, mm -hmm. or uh, to go to Dol Guldur. Um, But, of course... For Peter, it was an opportunity to put all these links in to, to make the the connections, to make right. the connection with the fact that uh, uh, Thrandril was Legolas's father. To you know tie up all those those knots to get the get the cast back together again. Mm -hmm. um, find a way as as there was at the White Council to have Galadriel and Saruman, uh, have Kate Blanchett and Christopher Lee there back in the studio again. Yeah, chance to have Bilbo, um, to have Ian back as as the as the old Bilbo just to frame the the beginning of the end of the story. So, yeah. you know, it was it was irresistible for, to him, I think. And then I think the the progress that had been made with special effects, uh, CGI stuff particularly, kind of took over the film. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know he couldn't uh, a lot of people have said to me oh he just willfully made the book into a trilogy and I, I my my opinion it's only an opinion uh is that absolutely that was not the case that that time literally overtook him and mm -hmm. that there's no way that he was going to be able to finish the film beyond roughly halfway through but by the time when he was supposed to have delivered the whole film so mm -hmm. it, instantly became two films yeah and the moment it became two films i i predicted that it would become it inevitably would become three films mm -hmm. some wonderful stuff in it some great performances uh, you know oh, absolutely totally magical moments um there's also a huge amount of excess mm -hmm. uh, in there which i think perhaps a different different 
team of people might have pulled back from? Mm-hmm. You know, do you need all those gold making, gold melting, gold rivers, seas right. in uh, the Lonely Mountain? Does all that need to be there? Do you need that great battle on the ice at the end in mm. such detail? You know, um, and and of course for people for whom the Hobbit is a slight book, mm-hmm. and it's a slight book. You know, I mean, it's um, it's a series of little episodes, really, because yeah. told in the way that he was telling and writing and telling it to his children, very episodic. Yeah. And then suddenly at the end, when he has to finish it, it suddenly turns into this high high narrative with language that's you know doesn't actually really quite match with the the opening chapters at all really Mm -hmm. um and then this slight story is even further burdened by having all this other overlay right you know having to link in radagast having to make all these connections uh and make them pay off um quite often at a cost of other things i mean i thought for instance that the scenes with Bjorn, which I think should have mm-hmm. been Bjorn, uh, should have been probably more fleshed out, you know, but, but time was given to Radagast and his rabbits and mm-hmm. you know, stuff. It's just like the thing ran away, I thought, ran away with itself. I love yeah. Martin Freeman's performance. Great to see Ian again, of course, um, mm-hmm. you know, and all the dwarves. I met all those dwarves, interviewed all of them, and when I, when I was talking to them and I knew the amount of detail that had gone into the creation of their characters, their costumes, mm-hmm. their props, you know, every one of them had a backstory that was, right. you know, in huge detail. But, of course, when, it, when the thing shook down, there wasn't time for all that detail in the film. Yeah. You know, it got lost. And so there are many, many, many scenes where a lot of the dwarves are just standing there, you know. Yeah no input into the scene at all and i and i I thought that was i thought that was a shame really Mm -hmm. um but as i say there's magnificence in it as well you know the attack on uh um, lake town it's fantastic the dragon itself is is brilliant Mm -hmm. um and you know all of it is of course is shot through with alan and john's art art work inspiration yeah the the the, the contract, I mean I haven't said much about John or or Alan but um, I mean and although he's not part of it I also hugely admire Ted Naismith and his absolutely work. you know so there are three artists with whom I'm happy to have uh, a friendship that I'm really grateful for and each of them are so different from each other you know if I wanted to pick a scene from Alan I would probably pick something like his 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 view of uh, maybe the meeting of um, Gandalf and Thorin on the bridge mm. uh, or his pictures of Rivendell. And if yeah. I go John, then it would be um, Gandalf falling with uh, the rog. Yeah. Know, yeah. Ice and fire. There's a title. Um, so, you know, I, I, I love them dearly and I, and I love the sort of, um, luminescence of ted's paintings too i mean some of them are just breathtaking so you know and that the the presence of alan and john in those all all six films uh is very strong and and it was a it was a smart move of peter's 
in the first place to book, mm -hmm. take on board. Not just, I mean, he admired them anyway, but he took on board to style his films the two people whose work was already known and beloved by Rings fans. Fans, yeah. And, you know, and so anything that they created, anything they created was going to look authentic. Right. Yeah, that's a yeah, it's a stroke of genius. Yeah, it was. And you know all those little things that he did. You know, I mean, I don't know whether it's true, but the stories told that when the casts were coming, who didn't know the book, were coming from England or flying down from LA to New Zealand, that they were given the box set of the CDs of the radio version and told, mm. if you want to know what it's about, listen to this. <laughs> Thirty hours, the length of your flight, you can. Know yeah. Um, uh, and you know, he, he embraced having Jane and I on board as well, which made another link with people because people were aware of our various connections with the prod the product as it were. Mm -hmm. So he made some very smart moves at the beginning. Um, and he was incredibly well supported by new line and their talent and, and several unsung heroes like, uh, um, uh, Jamie, who was the editor of the film, who was a hugely experienced, Jamie Selko, who was a hugely experienced editor and had worked with Peter on his early films. And I think really led Peter from being the, uh, the, the sort of filmmaker in, in, in becoming, as it were, mm. to the filmmaker who, you know, was able to, be his own sure and certain person. You know, his, his contribution to giving Peter, enabling Peter to be Peter was huge. And uh, then unquestionably Richard and Tanya and everybody at Wetter Workshop who made made visual reality what you know John and Alan had drawn on paper. Now, mm -hmm. that, that was a fantastic achievement. Yeah. So you know a great awe of, of those artists. Um, I'm still doing stuff now, you know, I've just written the introduction to the 2002 HarperCollins uh, Lord of the uh, well, Tolkien calendar, mm, which yeah. is featuring Ted Naismith's uh, Silmarillion paintings. Yeah. So uh, I was talking to Ted about that, and I've just written a piece about his pictures and the fact that it is, um, or it will be next year, um, the anniversary of the publication of the Silmarillion. Um, and I still remember what a revelation that book was when it when it came out because it was just like wow, you know, <laughs> here's this thing we knew about, and I'm now, you know, we're now able to read it. You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've got a young hobbit there. Yeah, I do. yeah, I've got a couple of them running around here a little bit. <laughs> so you mentioned. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier kind of the difference between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings in terms of the films. Um, one of the things that I always looked at, um, you know, and I, I don't know if I would just say, you know, oh, this is this is, you know, why it's doesn't work as well. But one of the things I, I thought, um, you know, just the production timeline that Peter and everyone was dealing with, you know, Guillermo del Toro drops out. And then, um, you know, Warner Brothers is ready to pull the plug on the whole thing unless Peter steps in. That was really the only way to save the project. So he does. 
And I think it was something like a year and a half. And you look at, you know, what he did on pre-production wise on Lord of the Rings, he was preparing stuff, you know, almost a decade before, before they started rolling. And I, I can't help but look at that and say, you know, it's, it's really hard to imagine that that, you know, that you're setting yourself up for success on such a tight schedule. Yeah, I, it is extraordinary. I mean, it's extraordinary that, that, and I think, well, ask anybody who worked on it, I think everybody was constantly chasing, you know, just chasing themselves to try and get stuff done. You mm -hmm. know, I, I remember talking to people at Weta Digital where, you know, they hadn't slept for hours, they would sleep on a, on a sleeping bag on the floor and then get up and do some more work. And, you know, everybody just um, killed themselves to, to get mm -hmm. it done. Uh, and, and as I say, it's an extraordinary, in that sense, it's an extraordinary accomplishment. Yeah. I, I wish for Peter that he had been able, if he was going to make it, and it was never his intention, as you say, to make it. Right. Um, he'd given up that long ago. You know, originally, yes, make The Hobbit, then make The Lord of the Rings. That was his own aim. But he'd let go of that. He'd done what he wanted to do. And mm -hmm. he wanted to move on to other things and had yeah. already on to other things. Um, and I don't think he had the eagerness to revisit it particularly. So he did it through duty uh, and did it, you know, inc incredibly well. But I, I, I wish for him that he had had the opportunity to have prepared for The Hobbit in the way that he, was, as you say, was able to yeah. Lord of the Rings and I think if he'd had the time to do that I think he might have made some different choices I think he would mm -hmm. have let go of some things um, been less indulgent perhaps if that's not too strong a term to use elsewhere um, and I think if he had wanted to sew the two together in the way that he eventually did uh, he would have maybe found a different way of, of doing it Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think he could have ever been expected to just make the Hobbit as it stands. Mm -hmm. I don't think he right. could have done that, you know. And and the moment certainly that he'd got Ian McKellen back, there was no way that he could ever just have Gandalf wander off and right. Yeah, you know, it was wasn't going to happen. Yeah, um, but you know, uh, uh, and he had to tie in so much stuff. You know, if you were going to be with the spiders in Merkwood you know, you've got all that weight of the fact of the scenes with uh, uh, Shelob from mm -hmm. the Lord of the Rings in your head, you know, there's yeah. all stuff there. So, you know, uh, a difficult task, a hugely difficult choice to have made. Mm -hmm. um, some brilliant moments in it. I'm sad for him that despite all that effort, I don't think it will ha have the status of the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, what I, does really? <laughs> maybe that was it. And maybe he yeah. knew that. Maybe, I mean, another, I mean, he knew that. What I mean is, maybe that was another reason for not wanting to go back to it because how can you better the thing that you've just done so yeah. well? Uh, and with all the problems that the book presents you mm -hmm. with, which is that a lot of the story doesn't have the weight of mm -hmm. background and setting that. That all of the rings has yeah you, you mentioned in western lands in in the radio version i also think of uh the a moment in the radio version where we hear gil gallard was an elven king uh yeah you know, on weathertop and 
there's no explanation really about other than the fact that this is something from the deep past there's history mm -hmm. in this place and that's what makes of course well to me anyway is what makes the lord of the rings of the book so fantastic is yeah. that it's this complex tapestry uh and that um you know although i mean for example that you know I, I know you wanted to ask me about Amazon. Of course, I know nothing about what Amazon <laughs> is other than the fact that they've got the appendices to work from and that they have got to be canonical and they can't do anything or set up anything that's outside the time frames that Tolkien um, described. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the, there is this... Um, in The Lord of the Rings, there is this... Const the book is constantly locked into the history of the Silmarillion in what it sometimes only narrowly. I mean, the fact yeah. that Shelob is is the child of Ungoliant or descendant mm -hmm. of Ungoliant uh, links it to back to the uh, to the Silmarillion. The fact that um, you know the Dead Marshes, mm -hmm. uh, we know where what that battle was uh, when those Elven warriors were slain. Yeah. And in the in the marshes and seen by Frodo and Sam and Gollum uh, so all those links you know Weathertop what the place Weathertop was the history of Rivendell uh, the history of Moria uh, all of those things and Lothlorien all of that stuff is bedded into sometimes only fragments sometimes mm -hmm. deeply detailed stories um, and the Hobbit does not have that you know Tolkien mm -hmm try to align it more with the Lord of the Rings, you know, expanding the, well, not expanding, but changing totally the Gollum riddle, riddles in the dark chapter to make it in line with the Gollum that had emerged in writing the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But, but you know, apart from that, there, there is this other subtext is not there. Mm -hmm. and so you still read the Hobbit, even as it, even with its changes pretty much as is, you don't yeah. need to know that back history. Right. Because largely Tolkien hadn't actually established that there was a link to the world that he was already separately creating. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a really difficult challenge, a really difficult challenge. And, yeah, and only somebody who could have approached it independently and said, I'm not going to be burdened by any of that. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to tell this story in the way. And of course, we will never know. I mean, I've right. seen images that, you know, were hidden images, well, hidden, I mean, images that <laughs> nobody's allowed to see of, uh, of the maquettes, I've seen the maquette, some of the maquettes that uh, Guillermo del Toro made, all of that artwork and, and stuff which exists, which I doubt will ever be seen by anybody now. Um, so we will never know. You know, that will be the, the, the unmade, one of the great unmade films, possibly. Yeah. Um, uh, and Peter's version is probably not what he ever really wanted to truly make. Mm -hmm. yeah. But there's a completion to it all. There's a yeah. round to it all. You know? Absolutely. And like you said, there's some truly great moments and truly great performances. Um, there's definitely things to appreciate there. Um, but yeah, we, we will always be curious about, you know, what um, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro's version would have been. I can only imagine, you know, with the, um, I remember really enjoying Pan's Labyrinth, for example, um, probably one of his better known films. And, you know, he's done, uh, all kinds of other films since then Hellboy and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So was it, I, I, I won't uh, make you, you know, or ask you to, to reveal anything that you shouldn't reveal, but was there a, a definite uh, Guillermo del Toro feel to, to the images that you did see? 
yeah, I'd say it was uniquely uniquely his own, uh, and wouldn't have fitted with wouldn't have fitted with the Lord of the Rings. But I don't think it need it would have needed to. Yeah, That's the problem. At yeah. the moment Peter was on board, it had to be Peter's vision. No Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I know Pete. Yeah, I think Peter even said, you know, he's. He, he can't make a Guillermo del Toro film. He has to make a Peter Jackson film. You know, that's how, how it but works. He was so, I mean, he was such a fan of del Toro. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I mean, which is why he would have been happy to have produced yeah. del Toro uh, directed because, you know, he loved the man's work. You know, yeah. why not? You know, I can see exactly what, you know, what Peter saw in, in that Absolutely. Work. Um, so revisiting uh, your, uh, the audio dramas, one of the kind of comparing it with, uh, with the films I've, I've read multiple people, um, that are big fans of, uh, of your audio dramas. Um, you know, they, they say it's arguably the most faithful adaptation you'll find of, uh, the Lord of the Rings. And one, one of the things that I noticed, one of the big things that stuck out to me was, um, you know, you, you, uh, keep the character of Aragorn. Um, you know, he does, he does, he's not, you know, doubtful of himself like he is in, in the films, which I totally understand why they did that for the films. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, bashing the films in any way. They're my favorite of all time. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I think that was one, one of my favorite, uh, things about the audio drama was getting that more book accurate Aragorn. Um, it was just, you know, the d different, the first time I had experienced that in other than just reading the books. I think, I think that, uh, there is about Tolkien's characters, many of the characters, actually, not just Aragorn. There is a s real sense of destiny. Mm -hmm. Um, destiny is a very strong, it's a strong part of, of, the kind of literary roots from which Tolkien was was writing, you know, the the, the great ballads uh, and legends and tales are often about people fulfilling destiny. You know, it's not just a kind of we'll see how things work out. And I right. make <laughs> this. There is a a destiny, and the destiny may be for ill or good. It may not be always for good, but even even the sense of uh, despair or disaster can be part of that destiny. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's, I think, probably what I wanted to convey most with Aragorn was that it was his destiny. But, as you say, absolutely, I can see that one of the problems with having said this is part of that heroic tradition, mm -hmm. uh, that is not a very human... Uh, sympathetic. Yeah, we, we 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 want characters who are fallible. Mm. If we had to identify and associate with with heroes, we need to know that they ha that there is a possibility of their failing, and that they they may have their weakness. I mean, that's that's also there in the book, of course, as well. Mm -hmm. All of, all of the uh, you know. The, even, even Sauron, Sauron alone, and Saruman too, both have their their weaknesses. They both mm -hmm. have their their failings, and the failings are their undoings. They're maybe their arrogance, or it may be their belief, total belief in themselves, but that they they are still 
fallible. Um, mm. And I think that that's a, a quality that we identify with when we see that we like our heroes, particularly now. I mean, I, I don't. I, I mean, obviously, the film in the historically, you know, the Robin Hoods and the King Arthur's and all the rest of it. You know, that's one way of looking at those characters, and we like strong characters, but we also like there to be a vulnerability about mm -hmm. characters. And many of the many of the most successful film characters are characters which have enough failings or insecurities or uncertainties that may mean that we can identify with them. They're not just yeah. so godlike or hero-like that, that they don't. I mean, even now, I mean, compared with how it was in the 1950s, say, or 60s, the superheroes now have their flaws. Right. They are no longer just sort of totally, you know, titanium-built machines who are uh, <laughs> able to do anything uh and always be supremely uh, successful. You know, mm -hmm. we know now that, that we want we want heroes to have vulnerabilities, um, and I think that's what Vigo brought. I mean, I thought Vigo's performance was fantastic. Actually. Oh, absolutely! Uh, and he fleshed out a character who is could be described as being, you know, like a kind of a legendary a legendary hero. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think that was probably the, the route I deliberately took. Mm -hmm. uh, if I have regrets now, I'm not going to say I've got regrets about Tom Bombadil because I don't. <laughs> uh, there's been a rather heated exchange on, on my face on my Facebook page recently um, because I was explaining yet again why I <laughs> Tom Bombadil, Old Man Willow, and the Barrow Whites. But but. The point was that I didn't include them because for me, the moment the Black Riders show up uh, and they're on the trail of, of the Hobbits, that's the motor that drives the story. Yeah. Uh, going on a detour, however enticing that may have been, uh, and however unique Tom is because he's the sole character in the book who seems to be able to handle the ring and be untouched by it and so on. Mm -hmm. And yes, as somebody pointed out to me recently, if Tolkien had thought he was superfluous, he wouldn't have had the long conversation between Gandalf and Tom on the homeward bound journey. Yeah. I accept all of that. But for <laughs> me, once you've got a bunch of sinister black riders galloping around on black horses with hissing mm -hmm. voices, that's what you've got to stick with. Yeah. Until they get to whatever the next point of call is, which is, first of all, uh, Bree, mm -hmm. uh, and then finally Rivendell, where the horses are, you know, overcome. The riders are overcome in the at the ford of us. Right. But so for me, it was always that's the that's the incentive and mm -hmm. for that that when Tolkien was writing at the point when he took that diversion, and uh, yeah, I mean shortcuts make long delays. And they would have that would have made a long delay. In yeah. Story. But also, uh, at that point, he did not know. He did not yet know exactly how the story was going to pan out. Mm. You know, even even when he's writing the the meeting at Bree, and Ryder is still possibly Trotter or whatever, he still is is saying to Christopher, who's in the Second World War, getting a letter saying. That he doesn't yet know who this character is, you mm -hmm. know, so, and that, to me, that is 
coming around full circle, but that to me is what is so special about the Lord of the Rings as a book is that it, it isn't written by a man who was a established novelist and writer who, who mm -hmm. sat down and said, this is the story I'm going to tell. It's going to have this plot point followed by that plot point. He didn't mm -hmm. do that. He yeah. told the story as he wrote it. Yeah. And I, fanciful, but I would say as he discovered the story. Mm -hmm. you know, the, for him, it was a journey of discovery all the way mm -hmm. along. And you know, as he discovered more things, so other areas opened out or linked mm -hmm. into things that he'd been writing or thinking about or creating in terms of the Silmarillion. Yeah. That process is what holds the story, makes the story so compelling that the person who was telling it didn't know at day one how it was going to end at day whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing which it has, which is a, is the, it has an immediacy which is to do with uh, telling a story without a view to publication. Um, you see it in a lot of writing. Um, we did the, a lot of it children's literature, incidentally. Wind in the Willows, um, The Hobbit, of course, mm -hmm. largely written and told at the same time. Uh, the Tale of Peter Rabbit, uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, all of these stories began as narratives that were told to in most cases there, a child yeah. you know, story that was invented rather like you might with your youngsters, you'd yeah. be telling them a story and you know, tonight and I'll make a bit, I'll tell you a bit more tomorrow. And then tomorrow you make up tomorrow. Right. <laughs> and that quality in a book. And, and that's not quite the same with Lord of the Rings, but there is a, a sense of discovery about the book that what mm -hmm. you are hearing, what you're reading rather, or hearing if you're listening to it or watching, if you're seeing it in the film, what you're, what you're experiencing is the process of the writer experiencing the story. Mm -hmm. and that's why whatever the literary shortcomings of the Lord of the Rings are, and there are, I would say most lit, English critics would say there are shortcomings, whatever those shortcomings are, they are totally and utterly compensated for by this sense of discovery that you, the reader, discover the next moment at the point when the writer himself discovers it as mm he's -hmm. writing it down, you know, and that moment on the brink of the crack of doom where just for a split second, Frodo, Frodo, you know, who's been all along burdened with it, but managed to carry that burden at that moment, he almost fails. You know, yeah. there is a vulnerability built in, uh, but, but, that you, you are poised on the edge of that abyss with him and you don't know how it's going to end. And the same, of course, when, when um, um, uh, Pippin, is it Pippin or is it Mary? I'm confused now. Uh, before the Black Gates, uh, block, block, blacks out rather as, as, as Bilbo does at the end of The Hobbit. Mm. Um, uh, Pippin, yeah. Yeah. It's flipping, and and he falls unconscious, and just hears, you know, the, the cry: "The eagles are coming! The eagles are coming!" But you know, there are these moments where the writer is not does not have everything tied up and sewn mm -hmm. up. There's still this moment of discovery, and that's why we, go, I think, we go back to the book and back to the book and back to the book again and yeah. again because 
each time we read it, it has this fresh, I'm living this. Now, of course, the truth is that text was overworked and overworked and reworked again and again and again. It was not as simple as that. Right. The essence of the storytelling from the beginning through to that climax, well, I'm back, anti-climax, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, what a way to end the story. It's yeah. like, and and it is, it's an end which is also in some strange way a beginning as well because, yeah. you, know, you know, this is the beginning of another life for this character. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, well, I, I uh, want to be conscious of your time here. Um, I did have a, a couple more questions. You mentioned the uh, um, Amazon series. Obviously, yeah. you know, uh, we're all kind of in the dark <laughs> for m- about most of it. Um, but do you have any, uh, you know, when when you heard they were going to be making a show based on the second age, um, do you have any any thoughts or, or things oh. that you hope to see? Well, of course, they've got amazing stuff that they can uh, that they can use. I mean, you know, Fall of Numenor, mm-hmm. um, the Forging of the Rings. You know, I mean, yeah, great stuff. Battles, uh, you know, the the f- fleeing from Numenor, the ships. I mean, there's so much visual potential, mm-hmm. visual material there. Um, the, the hard thing, I think, will be to give person, well, say hard thing. I'm sure they've got very good writers. But uh, they they need to be able to flesh out those characters because where Tolkien has not given us mm-hmm. you know, that. We have it. almost no dialogue <laughs> to work with. Yeah. No, actually none. You know, sometimes just an event, a date, an event. Um, you know, the Chronicles of the Kings of... of um, of uh, Numenor, for instance, you know, I mean, most of them, they are just names and dates. We don't have the detail of them. Um, so, yeah, there are references uh, and there are references in the history, in the 12 volumes of the history of Middle Earth, not, but not that many. Mm-hmm. Stuff in the Silmarillion at the end, of course, about Numenor. Um, um, unfinished Tales, there's a mm-hmm. few, well, Peoples of Middle Earth, but not a lot. Uh, which is great because it means that it gives a freedom to the writers. Yeah. Um, nobody's going to say, well, that's not what they said in the book, which right. is what you get if you're writing a radio play or making <laughs> a film. I didn't say that. <laughs> Where's <know>? Tom Bombadil? <laughs> <laughs> they have got the freedom to do an awful lot of, of uh, creative writing. And if they've got people on board, it's got, it's got a lot of potential mm-hmm. dramatic stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know how far they'll be able to reference stuff forward or back. I, yeah. you know, I'm not clear about that. I don't know. Um, but, you know, the first season is 20 episodes, we understand, which is uh, quite something. Um, and how many seasons? Oh, we don't know. But then they have 3,441 years to cover, so yeah, uh, which is the span of the Second Age. So you know they've got plenty of uh, plenty of scope there. Yeah, um, I think the the challenge, the real challenge they face, is calling it the Lord of the Rings, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's quite a problem for them because mm-hmm. you you know uh, people 
will expect there will be an expectation amongst a lot of people mm -hmm. that this is going to be a new Lord of the Rings, which it mm. can't be. Right. Um, can't be legally, it can't be. You know, so um, why would it anyway? Who'd want to remake it? Right, I mean, it'd be remade in hundred years time or something. People are still making movies, but um, you know, it's it's not going to be remade in our lifetime, and, yeah. and nor nor ought it to be because it would be folly. Although, yeah. That hasn't stopped a lot of <laughs> making a lot of perfectly adequate movies, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon with the Lord of the Rings. So they're burdened with a title which has expectations. And, you know, mm -hmm. we should forget that, of course, for all of the fans, people like yourself and many of your viewers who care about the book and are passionate about the book or the books, and therefore mm, they are rooted in the material itself. Mm -hmm. Many, many fans of the Lord of the Rings film trilogy and the Hobbit trilogy, I'm sure, maybe less so, um, were experts on the text. You know, mm -hmm. they were they were fans of the movies. You know, yeah. I mean, somebody left a, a funny comment on my Facebook page and said, "I couldn't believe it when we, we saw the Fellowship of the Ring." And I walked, I'd gone with a bunch of friends, and I walked out, and I said, "Well, that's a funny way to end a movie." <laughs> and, and he he said, my friend said it's the first volume of a trilogy. Well, not true, but anyway, uh, it's the first of three films. Oh, I didn't know that. So <laughs> there are many people who became fans of the films without having ever been fans of the books. Mm -hmm. I probably never did go and read the books because that is their that is their Lord of the Rings. Yeah, maybe true of the radio. I don't know as well. And there are people for whom it, it, that is the, the all they need to know about it. Yeah. Um, but of course, there are many other people who are steeped in the history of Middle Earth, not just the Lord of the Rings, but the Silmarillion and, and mm -hmm. Christopher's Christopher Tolkien's astonishing twelve volumes of archaeology, as I yeah. think, <laughs> uh, who will be attuned to everything that is possibly being picked up or not mm -hmm. picked up. But they've got a lot of freedom, and yeah. there's an appetite for these products. Um, you know, as there was with um, Game of Thrones. I mean, except when it came to the end, when everybody seemed to lose interest in it. Yeah. Curious. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's now a a brand, it seems mm -hmm. to me, a fantasy brand that I'm sure can carry it. And I'm sure if they do it well and they're filming in New Zealand, I don't know how much the how much of the scenery of New Zealand is going to figure there. But yeah, um, probably less so now because, ironically, when Peter made the first three films, you know, the, the locations were so much part of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it seems to me that so much of the magic of the Lord of the Rings is is those real locations. Yeah. When you see, when you see for the first time Edoras, when you see Medusel, when you see the golden hall standing on the top of that mound, mm -hmm. you know, that to my mind was just like a utterly magical moment. It was just like you know, it wasn't a model, but this this was a mm -hmm. real place. And as the camera, as the camera helicopter shot flew round, and you saw uh, Eowyn standing there looking yeah. out. I mean, utter, utterly, utterly entrancing. I mean, it was just mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's Middle Earth. Right. And there are many, many other moments in the film like that, of course. Um, Absolutely. Everywhere, everywhere, where there was those moments of absolute. This is real. It's a real place. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure they, I hope they can do that. And if they can do that, and if they can tell their story compellingly, 
mm-hmm. and if they can make the characters real, but still make them have, I hope, enough of the nuance of what the type of, what do I mean by this? The, the kind of manner of the characters. I don't mean that they have to talk in a kind of archaic way, but they, they need to have a, some kind of authority in the way that they speak and, and act. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure they'll achieve that. But, yeah. you know, as in Game of Thrones, there's, there's not a, there's nothing sloppy about it. You, you, you believe in these characters as who they are. They have to create that. But they yeah. have to create it for a lot of people who are either going to be expecting another Gandalf movie uh, or are hoping that it will be in some way like this other thing that they really liked. Yeah. And can it be like that? I don't, I don't know. Or will it be different? And if it is different, will that be good? Or I've got more, I've got no answers, any questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it'll I, be interesting. <laughs> I'm intrigued to see. And good luck to whoever's doing the tie in books for it. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask uh, about, uh, one last thing, and then I've got I've got a few rapid fire uh, fun questions about your favorite uh, things of Middle Earth. Um, so you've also done audio dramas uh, for another Tolkien work, uh, Tales from the Perilous Realm, yeah. and you mentioned earlier uh, Chronicles of Narnia as well. So I was curious, um, and you've also written books on uh, C.S. Lewis Narnia. Um, what uh, you know? What uh, kind of your I'm just I'm just curious of your you know thoughts and your approach to Narnia and how it's maybe similar and how maybe it's different uh, with Middle Earth. Yeah, it is quite different. I mean, I, I was obsessed with Narnia uh, as a very young kid. Um, read the Lord of the Rings. Move on to the other books now. Uh, I read the Land of the Witch in the Wardrobe uh, when I was sickly in bed with some kids disease I don't know what it was mumps or measles or chicken pops or something and uh, it was lent to me by a, a friend uh, and I got frightened when um, Aslan was killed and uh, mm. stopped reading the book didn't read it till later and I gave it back <laughs> to the, the, the friend who lent it to me and she said what did you think of it and I said I didn't like it it was scary uh, and she said well but it's all right at the end and I said I didn't read the end and she said I think you better read it again <laughs> Uh, and I totally believed in Narnia, and I still do in a funny kind of way. I know that sounds a bit fay, but I really do believe, in a sense, that Narnia exists in some kind of way. I don't know what quite what I mean by that. In in my imagination, hmm. there are places that exist that that are, I can't say truthfully exist, but they exist to me as a near re- a near personal kind of reality mm. and Narnia is one of them probably the strongest actually because i it consumed me before tolkien um i climbed into my parents double fronted wardrobe when they were out <laughs> shopping or something and shut the door not quite closed because professor the professor in the, the line of which the wardrobe had told the children never to close the door mm. or rather the writer mr mr lewis told us that um, and I sat there thinking, my eyes screwed up, that if I really, 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 really wanted it, the back of this wardrobe would disappear. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how true I believed it. And, and I was always slightly embarrassed about telling that story for years and years and years, uh, until one day I was visiting, who I mentioned earlier, Roger Lanston Green, who was, of course, very strong 
association with Lewis and Tolkien, um, a Tolkien's biographer. And I said, it's a weird thing to say that I did that. I feel a bit foolish in saying it. He said, oh, come with me. And he took me into the, this was his family's home that he'd inherited. Mm -hmm. And there was a fireplace in this room with a big overmantel, a big, big, big mirror above the mantelpiece. And he said, um, I was so obsessed with uh, Alice's stories that when I was about five or six years old, my parents came in and found me on the mantelpiece there trying to get through the looking glass. <laughs> and uh, the moment he told me that, I didn't feel embarrassed about saying I once tried to get through the back of my wardrobe because that's how strongly the world, mm. Lewis's world, obsessed me. Um, I... For two reasons. One, because at first I didn't see it. And then when I did see it, I was never disturbed by the allegorical nature mm. of Lewis's books. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a church-going, um, Christian-believing family, um, still am. Um, and to me, I saw them as being um, allegorical. So I was never... Mm -hmm. By it. it never came to me as a, a shock that Aslan's death and coming back to life was a was a, an analogy of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Right. Never, never seemed to me wrong. Mm -hmm. But I understand to people who felt deceived by it, and there are many, um, and who who don't have any kind don't don't want to buy into that belief mm -hmm. that it seems subversive to have fed children a story which appears to be a fantasy but which has got these deeply spiritual parallels going on mm -hmm. um, to me the, the the creation episodes in uh, the magician's nephew and the apocalyptic scenes at the end of the last battle are some yeah. of the most powerful scenes in the books and uh, and i love them uh, yeah. and yeah, I believed, I believed that one day I might find a way into Narnia. When I read the next book, of course, I discovered that you can't get to Narnia through the same route. Right. So I tried to get through the back of wardrobes. <laughs> I still thought that there might be a way through a picture, as in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader or whatever. Right. Um, so I've never lost my affection for, for Lewis. Um, it dulled slightly through my deep friendship, long-lasting friendship with Pauline Baines, when I discovered that he had been really very critical of her work which to me mm. is narnia yeah um, it's interesting uh, i just look at those to me you know i if i just think narnia then i see that that lamp in the in amongst the trees covered in snow uh or i think of the edmund looking across the lake to the care to the witch white witch's castle mm -hmm. uh or i think of that wonderful cover that she did for over here anyway for a paperback version of uh fledged the flying horse with diggory and polly sitting on its back and the whole of the narnia landscape laid out yeah. it's just breathtaking yeah. um but anyway so yeah i've always loved lewis i've always felt that there is, there is room in the world to in your mind or your heart or your imagination just keep a little kind of belief that there are there are places, you know, Oz, Wonderland, mm -hmm. Moominland. Nobody knows about Moomins in America, I don't think. But, you know, there there are loads of fictional places which mm -hmm. sometimes, particularly if you're, a, as I was, a young, sickly kid growing up on my own with no brothers or sisters, mm -hmm. um, 
not mixing much with my peers, um, become as real as the real world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if, if, when on my with my dying breath, if there is anything outside of this existence that we have here, and if it isn't just a tidge like the Narnia at the end of the last battle, I will be deeply, deeply distressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what your first part of that question was. I've gone off. Oh, no, that was, that was, that was great. Uh, oh, yeah. It, um... Well, it's, uh, they were different. They were it, 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 intentionally, uh, the, the chronicles were geared for a, a younger audience. Mm-hmm. So that's the aim of the, of the series very much. Had a strong cast uh, over the years with some great performers playing the parts. Um, the actor who played Treebeard, a guy called Stephen Thorne, mm. played Aslan in all of the Seven Chronicles and had a, his amazing voice. Um, and he was a he was a wonderful. He's, to me, he's only the voice of it. I, I can only hear as the voice of Aslan. I've watched the movies or the ones that have been made. Um, they're okay, you know. They've got some good stuff in them. I uh, wasn't involved in any way with them, but. Um, uh, there's things in there that I like a lot. Um, uh, you know, Lewis has got his failings in characters. He's very bad at, at creating girl characters, I think, <laughs> for the most part. Certainly Susan. Uh, Lucy's a very strong, well-formed character. But, you know, they're, they're, he, he's, you know, I mean, this is a, a man who, at the time he was writing these books, was pretty misogynist and unmarried. Mm. And mixed in this very, very chummy guys club. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, even people who were married, like Tolkien, you know, Edith Tolkien didn't wasn't part of the inkling. She didn't, mm-hmm. you know, go along and listen to them reading their their poems or their chunks of legendary text. So, you know, he had a home life and a and a writing world Oxford type life. Right. <laughs> um, and you know, Lewis, you know, was pretty much immune to understanding women until he fell in love much later in life. Right. And I think that was was pr- problematic for people like Tolkien and Charles Williams and his other friends, um, as it was for Lewis, because they couldn't quite understand what had happened to him. You know, he's something fallen in love. But I still love the books dearly. And, yeah, the, you know, there's such, there's such a, a kind of cross-current between the two writers and their two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, the differences are that Lewis wrote quickly, uh, I'm going to say daringly, sloppily, because mm-hmm. he didn't bother about, you know, the chronologies of things. Or right. <laughs> you know, if you went back to Narnia and it was a few years later, well, everything was changed, but there was no deep thinking about how it had changed or why it had changed. Why had Care Paravel fallen into ruins? when they come back in Prince Caspian, didn't really bother to, you know, whereas Tolkien would have had a whole story about the fall of Arabelle, you know. Um, So he's not like Lewis in that, uh, like uh, Tolkien in that sense. Um, He just wanted to tell a good yarn and and, uh, told it in the way that he wanted to. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as we know, Tolkien hated the fact that Father Christmas appears in the land of right. which he couldn't cope with the fact that here was a man who was writing what was clearly a thinly veiled Christian allegory and muddled up in it was a character like Bacchus and Fauns and, you know, other characters from Greek mythology, which were not the most salubrious of characters. You know, mm-hmm. what the hell were they doing in a story where there was a talking lion who was supposed to be Jesus? So, you know, I can see, <laughs> I can see 
Tolkien's frustrations in all of that. But there's nevertheless um, a sense of the same uh, urge to create, which is mm -hmm. what I, I guess you know united those guys anyway, and and Charles Williams as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, a different approach, but you know, throughout, throughout it all, writing about the land of Narnia got me much closer to Pauline Baines, and mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, we we remained close friends. My husband and, and david and myself used to be regular visitors and spend time with them we loved her loved her dearly and i treasure her friendship enormously um so yeah yeah all all link one of the things i've been very lucky in my life is that almost everything i've done has been has come out of things that i love and the only good stuff I've ever done has been from those sources and origins. Once in a while, I've done a job because I needed the money. I needed to do a job for somebody uh, and I needed a crust. So I took on a job that I wasn't really maybe happy with. Mm -hmm. and, it, and the result was never satisfying. <laughs> but all those others, all the good stuff, for all the you know difficulties maybe you know there's a lot of problems in making the radio series a lot of challenges let's say today and a lot of issues in connection with the movies uh but despite all of that they were things which gave me great deep lasting pleasure but they came out of things that i already loved mm. and that's true of you know it's true of when i did the narnia chronicles it's true when i did the mervyn peak gormagast stories because I was uh, I became a close friend of Mervyn Peake's widow, Maeve Gilmore, and that relationship was, you know, what what fired that ability to to transfer his very idiosyncratic stories onto radio, uh, and my passion for T. H. White's The Once and Future King, which grew out of seeing The Sword in the Stone, Walt Disney's movie. We haven't yeah. touched, it, but you know, Disney's a major obsession with my in my life. Uh, seeing the Lord of seeing the Sword in the Stone going and buying the paperback because I wanted to read the story of this movie I'd just seen and loved. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm finding it was not very much like the film. <laughs> <laughs> that was totally magical and uh, bizarre and wonderful. And, and, you know, it had this character of Merlin who was not the Merlin I'd read of in Tennyson or Mallory. Mm -hmm. This was a, a Merlin who lived backwards through time and wore a, a deer stalker and smoked a Meerschaum pipe and knew about electricity. And, uh, you know, it was eccentric and wild and amazing. So, um, and Ray Bradbury, you know, as a kid, uh, when I read, discovered a book by Ray, who became a friend of mine for 30 years, we uh, were, were friends later in life. But as a kid, I'd picked up a paperback called The Golden Apples of the Sun, which is the most magical title in the world. Uh, and it had fantastic images on the front, which I later discovered were Goya monsters and grotesques. I didn't know that then, but they looked amazing. And on the back <laughs> of the book, it said, Ray Bradbury takes you inside imagination. And the word imagination was printed backwards. And I thought this was so cool. And I took this book home and the first story was called The Foghorn and it was about a, a, a sea monster. Uh, it became the, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms in, mm. in movie yeah. years later, made by, uh, of which the, the sea monster was created by Ray Bradbury's all-time long-term friend, Ray Harryhausen. 
another great giant of my early life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read this story about a sea monster that falls in love with a foghorn sounding lighthouse, you know, and, and I was in trials. And I remember it was this bright, sunny July day, birthday, around my birthday. And my family were sitting in the garden enjoying the sun. And I just sat in my room reading. I had to read all these stories. And I had to read them right now. Um, and, you know, then I was scampering back to the library to get Something Wicked This Way Comes or Dandelion Wine or any other book that had the magical names Ray Bradbury on the cover. You know, and then I wrote Ray Bradbury a letter, uh, a fan letter, and he wrote back and a long letter, two pages. And and I couldn't believe it. Um, well, I did believe it because I just thought anybody I write to is going to write back to me. The fact that he was <laughs> a famous American writer didn't occur to me that he wouldn't. So I wrote back again and we started a correspondence that eventually became meeting whenever I was in LA or he was in London. Um, we corresponded, you know, I've got hundreds of letters from Ray. Uh, he was a dear, dear friend. And then lo and behold, some years later, I get an idea. I asked the BBC, what do they think about it? And so I make a radio series called Tales of the Bizarre. Mm. And uh, these are all Ray's, I'm dramatizing Ray's stories. And then Ray agrees to introduce them vocally. Um, uh, So, you know, all of these things just have fed out of these discoveries and joys of my early youth. Um, And that, you know, I've not done anything very creative of my own, very little. all I've done is just point other people to other people's greatness, I think. Mm. But if I've done that, um, well, I'm happy. That's an, that's an amazing sentiment I feel like to, uh, to conclude with. And uh, yeah, I can definitely relate to the feeling of just pointing people toward, toward greatness, um, you know, with this little YouTube channel that I'm running here and, uh, um, for what it's worth, I think your uh, dramatization of Lord of the Rings uh, will always be among my favorite things. And uh, I, in my um, personal opinion, I feel like uh, you achieved greatness yourself uh, with that with that work. So I, I greatly appreciate it. Um, I, I would like to wrap up with yeah. some uh, fun rapid fire questions for you. Some uh, a, a little. Uh, kind of get to know you quiz on some of your favorite things in middle earth so right. what so who is your favorite middle earth character oh Gollum, no question mm. Great. Uh, yeah has to be Gollum, just simply because he's so tortured and so multifaceted you know and the scenes my favorite scenes obviously in the book and and indeed in the film and the radio versions or all, all, any version is those dialogues between you know good Gollum, bad Gollum are just yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, no question, Gollum. But of course, then you go, oh yeah, but hang on a minute. <laughs> I'm quite, <laughs> quite fond of Treebeard too. And well, and of course Frodo, because Frodo is just an amazing character. So, and Sam. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, I'll stick with Gollum because it's probably what I have to stick with. Yeah, I think I think uh, many of us who are big Tolkien fans could probably rationalize just about any answer for that. <laughs> um, so, what is your favorite Tolkien book? 
My favourite Tolkien book, I think, is uh, is Tree and Leaf. Uh, sorry, this is really wacky, I know, <laughs> but um, not just—I mean, not so much, not so much for on fairy stories. Although I've learned a lot from it, and I—I uh, I still learn from it when I read it. Tolkien's thoughts about writing and fairy stories and legend. But Leaf by Niggle, apart from the fact that it's written by a man who said that he hated allegory wherever he could smell it, uh, (laughs) and it is an allegory, and it's an allegory of his uh, Catholic Christian faith, Mm -hmm. uh, but also is the story of himself creating something that grows and grows and grows and gets out of control almost. Uh, but is but then becomes something which has its own reality and lives in its own way. So it's a story which moves me to tears when I read it. Uh, I, f- I find it just entrancing and perfect. And yeah, I mean, of course, I'm not comparing it with The Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion. But for me, it's a very, very special story. And I love, I dramatize it as part of the Tales of the Perilous Realm. Right. Um, and I love it. Um, I also love, because it's such a little gem, I love Smith & Wooden Major too, mm. which is just perfect. And it's like a little miniature, you know, the, this man who created this enormous canvas of extraordinary dimensions was able to create this little, little miniature. I, I love that book too. Great. At least my niggle. Perfect. Um, so if you lived in Middle Earth, what race of a uh, person would you be a dwarf elf man hobbit bayorning take your pick oh that's an interesting question uh when we when we did the radio version i wrote a scene there are, there's a scene in mordor where there are two orcs on the gorgoroth road talking about uh, and it's a kind of superfluous scene really but it's character uh, and I wrote it with a view to Michael Bakewell and myself playing the, the parts of these two orcs as a sort of cameo joke. Anyway, the scene got cut and it didn't happen. But um, so I know I certainly wouldn't be an orc. I'd hope not. I, hope <laughs> at all. I think I'd quite like, I think I'd quite like to live uh, in Rivendell, actually. Mm. I think that would be. So I think I'd probably want to be, although I was absolutely no physical likelihood of my ever being or looking like an elf. Um, I think I would, yeah, I think that's where I would most want to live, if I can think of it like that. Um, orders of living places would be Rivendell, because I think it's probably peaceful and beautiful and idyllic. Um, maybe Lothlorien, but it's a bit kind of maybe a bit dark, and I think mm-hmm. I might put up with trees. I think I want to see a bit more than just trees. Um, Minas Tirith, I'd quite like to live in, because it seems, seems like an amazing city to live in. But no, Hobbiton? No, not sure. I mean, I've stood in the real Hobbit hole now. I've done it um, yeah. in New Zealand. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think Rivendell. So I'd be I'd be somebody elven in the mm. in the uh, in the court of Elrond. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I, fan- I fancy that. I fancy that sound of elves singing at night and the waterfall, mm-hmm. the, the river running below the buildings, and yeah. Fancy that. Great. 
And so uh, last question, if uh, what place in Middle Earth would you most like to visit but not live? Ah, Fangorn, I think. Hmm. I'd, love to, I'd love to, that. Um, in fact, any of, probably any of the woods, actually. Not Mertwood, because I'm not that keen on spiders, so probably. <laughs> um, but Fangorn, yeah, I'd be, that, that would, and I, I feel it would be like one of those one of those amazing pictures that um, John Lee creates. It's a base on a, on a real place. I forgot the name of the wood at the moment uh, in Devon, which he's he uses with, with these moss covered trees that are almost mm. serpentine. You know, yeah, that that's that's now how I kind of see areas of Fangorn. So yeah, Fangorn, I think I would quite like to to go to. But if it was a city. Then I think I'd choose Gondolin, obviously pre the mm. fall. Yes. Um, because Gondolin seems to me such a, and I, I'm seeing it as I'm saying this, I'm seeing Ted Naismith's mm. very incarnations of Gondolin. So if if it's out in the open country, I'll have Fangorn. If we're talking cities, then I'd, I'd like a, a short stay in Gondolin, but not to live there. Yeah. Certainly not before. Not, you know, yeah. <laughs> dragons show up and everything yeah <laughs> yeah we get we get the answer a lot uh moria is another one that it's like dur if i get to pick the time period i'll go visit moria yeah, that's a good point yeah. <laughs> well brian thank you so much um everyone if you're uh interested i highly highly recommend that you check out the 1981 bbc dramatization of lord of the rings um it's I think available on pretty much any audiobook platform. I listen to it on Audible all the time. Um, it is fantastic and fun, uh, fun new way to discover Middle Earth if you haven't listened to it before. Um, I can't give it a high enough recommendation. Brian, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and joining us today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. If you're going to edit this, because it seems to have been going on for, for many, many hours now. I don't know how long we've been talking about a long time. If you're going to edit any of this, uh, be sensitive to anything you think is incredibly indiscreet. Or, or <laughs> but uh, no, it's been, a, it's been a joy to be with you, Matt, and, uh, and, and your viewers and listeners, because uh, uh, I never tire of talking about this subject, as you've guessed um and uh any opportunity and this has been particularly a particularly enjoyable opportunity so thank you very much thanks so much for listening to this audio podcast of nerd of the rings to get the latest middle earth related videos including tolkien explained complete travels and theories visit youtube.com slash nerd of the rings this audio podcast is made possible by the support of my wonderful patreon supporters to learn how you can score some exclusive perks while supporting the channel, visit patreon.com slash nerd of the rings. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Nerd of the Rings.